Welcome to episode 10 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by not just one guest, but two. So with me tonight, I've got Dave Barker. Hello. And, once again, Jake Noble. Hello. It is good to have you back, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just glad that for the first time ever, really, like schedules have synced up in such a way that we could have more than one extra person on the show. So, you know, we caught Dave when he's in the country. <laughs> and Jake, you've actually managed to find some time between everything else that you're busy doing. Yep. Yeah, it's good to it's good to be here. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people out there that are benefiting from the you know, the work you've been doing on the Math Hammer app. But at least finally huh. I've managed to squeeze some time in for the podcast in your schedule as well. Yes. Yeah. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative K and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. Finally, if you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. There are links in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. There you go, Dave. I did it in one. You did it. I'm impressed. Uh, <laughs> last time we recorded, I think you had four or five goes at that before you got well, <laughs> Some, done. well done, Tony. Something like that. I'm not. I'm not falling asleep like I was last time. I am <laughs> a good better mental state for this one. Um. So yeah. However, as some of you are probably aware, it has been a while since we did the last episode, and unfortunately, that's just because you know. Life gets busy, <laughs> and it has been for a lot of us, uh, but being me in particular this last month, just so much going on in just like, you know, family life and everything that I just could not find the time to sit down with anyone. I mean, um, we've been rescheduling this particular recording a couple of times now over the last two weeks, and um, originally it was going to be with Chris, and instead now we've got Dave and Jake, so... Eventually managed to get everything to line up, and after a longer than usual delay, it is here. We haven't gone anywhere, and in fact, if anything, the show has been doing really well in the last month, and almost doubled in lifetime downloads, even without uh, a bi-weekly episode. So, clearly, it's still going strong. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear. I'm glad. It's really good to hear when we're getting lots more people listening because it means there's more people out there like us. So we not we don't need to feel quite as lonely, right? I mean, it's funny that I, I think from what I can tell, um, the in the last episode we covered the like the first book of the Psychic Awakening, and I think having that sort of more topical content at the time um, brought in probably some newer viewers. Um, who seem to have enjoyed the show and then they've gone back through the back catalogue and started listening to some of the episodes that we've done previously. So I think that's where actually a good number of the, like the new downloaders uh, 
new downloads have come from. Yeah, that could explain it. I, that's the way I, I tend to pick up podcasts. When you mentioned uh, the Codex uh, podcast a few weeks ago, I, I immediately went back and started at number one because I think they've got about the same number that we have at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that makes sense. Yeah, so um, I, d- I don't intend to have every episode be, you know, the latest Codex, latest um, new releases and Codex reviews and all the rest of it. But it is nice to do something topical every now and again, so maybe they'll get in a few more viewers and maybe they'll uh, come for the latest hotness and stay for the narrative. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's my aim with this show more than anything, is, you know, help people you know discover more ways to play 40k, so if getting them in with the latest ways to play is what gets them here, but then they stay for all the different ways throughout to play, then, you know, mission complete. <laughs> <laughs> They'll not have to stay too long before they get exposed to Rainbow Warriors. No, not long at all. That or Death Skulls. And uh, maybe every couple of episodes, even Cadians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, uh, I think there's some in this one. I can't remember. Anyway. <laughs> well, we'll find out shortly in your Pin Station Garrison, which I'm sure you'll have plenty of stuff that <laughs> you've been on with in, uh, since you were last on. But uh, yeah, so. Uh, as always, a little rundown of what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, we will be catching up with our, no doubt, quite large paint station garrisons, as it's been a while since we've all been on, and we've been up to lots of stuff. Because although I've been very busy with, you know, sort of like life stuff, um, the way I've made up for that is I've been able to sort of cram in every spare moment I've had into my painting. So, unfortunately, whereas I've not got any games played this month, and not got as many podcasts recorded as I would normally like. I have got a good bit of painting done, so I'm quite happy with that. But, fortunately, you two have played some games, so you'll be able to talk about that later on in our games played. Um, there was going to originally be quite a bumper news and new releases section, but it's kept mutating over the last month as there's been so many new things that have like, come out of the Warhammer community and the new releases and things coming up with Psychic Awakening and all sorts that actually decided to try and cut it because like, if you want to go hear about all the cool new in-depth things that Space Marines and Chaos Marines and all sorts going to be getting with like Faith and Fury then there's plenty of world podcasts that have already covered those topics so you know plenty of sources for information out there for that so instead we're probably just going to fawn a little bit over some of the new models and new things for some of the new armies, but not too much in-depth on that. Um, because instead, our main spotlight topic tonight is one that actually I was quite excited about and um, was one of the reasons why I wanted to get this episode recorded, but it's just taken so long to get here that I'm just glad I'm finally doing it. It's eight rules that you should try. <laughs> because... Basically, I think there's a, a, a selection of these basically like quality of life rules for your games of 40k now that exist in various places and games workshop publications, but they're just not quite part of the core rules. And not everybody's aware that some of them even exist, and I think they'd be brilliant in basically any game of 40k, and I think a lot of people would benefit from trying them as well, probably enjoy them. So we're going we're gonna to discuss those and see what you guys think. Yeah, looking forward to that section. Should be good. Yeah, yeah, me too. There's some really good ones in there. I'm looking forward to discussing it. Um, so yeah, that's basically the rundown of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So unless either of you two have anything else you'd like to add, 
I think we can probably jump into the paint station garrison. No, I don't think we need to preview the show too much more. Let's uh, jump ahead. Cool. Then we'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back in the paint station garrison, and it has been too long since we've been here. <laughs> because yeah. it's starting to get crowded. So... Tell us, Dave, was made its way through your paint station garrison in what is pretty much the last month now. Yeah, actually, my paint station garrison is not uh, not as crowded as it was because I managed to get some painting done despite a bit of work travel that uh, that got in the way. So um, I think I posted most of these up on the Facebook group, uh, the Narrative Wargamer Facebook group, uh, uh, as I've been doing them. But I think the first thing I finished uh, that's worth mentioning is I finished uh, the first eight of my. Uh, well, the first squad of eight of my Black Legion uh, uh, Chaos Space Marine Berserkers, uh, which I, I've talked about uh, the 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 never-ending horror of detailing in gold, I think, in the, the last mm-hmm. couple of podcasts. I finally finished to finish working my way through that, and the rest of the models were, were relatively easily, especially the chapter icon, which was transfers, which felt so nice after battling through that gold. <laughs> um but I'm really pleased with the way they've come out. I've got a nice uh, dark brass colour after washing the gold in uh, contrast snake bite leather. Uh, I'm really pleased with the way they came out and um, and the black shoulder pads and helmets to represent the fact that they're actually part of my Black Legion force. So quite pleased with them. Um, they are the, the current ones, shall we just say the slightly older current ones. Um, so they are a bit chunky with the big, big, uh, big hands. And uh, I have to say... I am genuinely disappointed there was not a a new um Corn Berserker kit alongside the Faith and Fury release. Yeah, I think you you said on the last episode that you were looking forward to hoping that that would come out, right? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, we got a cool new Chaos Sorcerer, but like when you got Howling Banshees and Incubi um for the last one, I was really hoping this would have been GW's opportunity to drop in a new Berserker kit if they had one in the works. So yeah, absolutely. Opportunity maybe, missed, I, don't I think, know. unfortunately. There's there's a lot of chatter at the moment about Games Workshop expanding their facilities so that they can produce more new more kits. So maybe hopefully, uh, maybe we're just hoping that uh, new corn berserkers will be part of that expansion, along with everything else we want: different guards, uh, types, and and all the rest of it. So I'm really pleased with them. If you want to see them, there, there's a photo of those on the on the Facebook group. And then the last thing I've finished is uh, is the one that I posted up a couple of nights ago, which is a, a really old first edition chaplain uh, that I've, I've painted to go with my Crimson Fist army. And he, he he's the same sort of size as an RTBO one. He looks very bizarre next to the Primaris in terms of his size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he looks a little bit really... like he's part of the Crimson Gloves rather than the Crimson Fists. <laughs> He, he does have that big first edition large glove thing, very very similar actually to the to the berserkers that are there, or indeed the new Mephiston, who's also wearing gloves over the top of his armor, which is that's, seems that's, to be a little bit of a controversial thing online. Uh, that's the new hipster thing for Primaris librarians. You wear gloves. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 but it's based off the really old artwork. Yeah, fashion goes around in circles, doesn't it? <laughs> Mephiston's always worn gloves, and I think it's a bit of that um, sort of... I mean, he is the traditional classic space vampire, really, Mephiston, isn't he? So, 
Um, but yes, I wasn't talking about Mephisto. I was talking about my new Crimson Fist champ uh, chaplain. So it's, a, it's only the second ever chaplain I've ever finished painting. But I really enjoyed him. I, I didn't do this one in contrast paints either. Uh, it's primarily in, in normal paints again. So every now and again, I need to dip in and make sure I've not lost my normal painting skills. And as you can see, if you've seen it online, maybe maybe I have lost my normal painting skills. <laughs> He's not the best painter guy. But I'm really happy with him. It's, it's an old model I've been wanting to paint for ages. So he's come out quite nicely. And then I've got a few things, that's all everything I've finished. I've got a few things in progress. I've got a, a squad of Black Legion Terminators that I'm getting one with, and I'm pleased to say I've finished the gold on those guys as well, although I've not finished the miniatures yet. Uh, I've got six spirits hosts for my Age of Sigma army, which will double up as demons for uh, for the Black Legion as well, uh, that are they're halfway through painted. I've got a rhino that's half painted for the Black Legion, as well as uh, nine bikes that I've just, just about started on. And, uh, and quite an odd, I'm sure I'll post it, post it up in the next few days, a, a ghost in a sheet. So it's a person in a sheet um, that I'm going to use for a, a bound demon host. And she came as part of the uh, nuns with laser guns that I've got for my uh, PDF force. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll post that up in the next few days, but that's that's coming out quite nicely. Uh, I've got my five angry marines I've, I've got back to, they were half painted and I've decided I need to finish them soon. And then the, the last thing there is, uh, I've got, um, I built a load of mix of beastmen guard parts to make uh, abhuman conscripts. That'll just run as conscripts when I get around to my imperial guard army. So the mix of beastmen parts, uh, ungo parts and, and imperial guard. But I, I was a bit stuck on colour scheme, so I've started one of them as a test piece to see if I can find a nice colour scheme that I'm happy with. Excellent. Nice. You've been yeah. busy, and I guess yeah, I've been I've been trying to fit in as much hobby. My my wife's been quite tolerant about letting me disappear in the evenings upstairs and and play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess the only other thing I've done really is uh, we went out uh, uh, this last weekend to the Christmas market in Buddy St Edmunds, and on the way back out of town, we we just happened to walk past the Warhammer shop, so I popped in to to buy a kit to build my chapter master. Uh, which I'm going to build out at Terminator Parts. But more importantly, the kids were with me and they bugged me and they said, we want something to paint. And, and my kids are 12 and 14 girls, uh, but they, they don't always bug me, but they like to do it something every now and again. And they said, I said, what do you want? They want, we want some orc boys. So I thought Tony might like the fact that my, yes. my kids were drawn to the orcs this time. Nice. More for the green tide. Absolutely. And they're quite quite drawn to uh, to the idea of painting some orcs. So they're going to go small. So we started building those. And before long, we'll have some uh, two small bands of uh, orcs with a knob each to, uh, um, to lead them. Excellent. I think that's it for my Pates Irish Shout and Coast. I've gone on a fair amount of time. So I guess you should hand should that over to Jake and see what you've been painting, sir. Oh, th thank you. Um... I've done uh, so since I was last since I was last on the show, which was in August. I've had uh, I finished twenty two Valhallans, which are the uh, two of them are company commanders, like old school, old school, old, the Games Workshop Valhallans, um, which they don't do anymore. Um, and then the rest are not strictly Valhallans because they're third party from Reptilian Reptilian Overlords. So. Uh, got yeah, twenty two of those. Plus, I think I've already done sixteen, so now I'm up to thirty eight or some or so. Um, and then I've got I've got some missile launches of them as well. So I'm up to like forty odd models of Valhalla's, um, but I'll have sixty once they're all done. So that's 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 slowly getting there. And 
it feels good to actually say that I've done some more on them because it's a lot, it's a lot to do. Um, but I'm getting there with them. And and then the others that I've finished are two primary psychers, which takes me up to three. Um, so I've got a red one, a yellow one, and a blue one now. Um, I don't know why. I just think it, they stand out, and you know, the yellow one can have these powers, and the blue one can have passive powers, and the red one can have aggressive powers or something. Um, I was and then I also clearly using different psychic laws. That's what it is. Different winter yeah, magic. Yeah, different disciplines. Um, <laughs> and then the model I've just finished. I've just I've just put it on the Facebook group actually because I think I might have I've, paid, I've posted it in various places, but I've just put it on the group is. The, the psyker from Black Fortress Escalation, uh, I think. At, yeah. At Arad, I can't say her name. I'm not even going to. Aradia Madelian. Aradia Madelian. That's that's what I'm going to call call her. So, yeah, I've just finished her. And uh, I think that's probably the best model I've ever painted. Um, I, I, I think doing the yellow psyker and the blue psyker, like got me into the whole wet blending thing again and then when I went to do the to do the last one I ended up wet blending red into purple on the cloak because I didn't I was going to make a purple because I didn't have a purple and then just by having the red and blue on the palette I sort of made this purple and accidentally made various purples from the red and the blue and then ended up blending it onto the cloak and and yeah it worked out it worked out pretty well so um it looks really nice. I was really surprised when you mentioned on your, I think it was Instagram, wherever that it was the first time you've been like properly attempting a blend. And I was like, you've done yeah, it really so, well. Yeah, right. It, well, I've done I've done like a blend, you know, with like a red, so like red into shade, um, but never yes. like one color, never one color to another. Um, yeah, so so yeah, it was it was good. I was trying, I was trying. I always try and try something new on um, um, on each like project that I do. Um, mm. So and and this one was quite a big a big thing to do. Um, I, I um, think it's a, that an interesting approach you took to sort of like you know not batch painting but like chain painting all your psychers at once and then deciding how you're going to differentiate them and like injecting that bit of personality from one to the other. Yeah, and like I want to do three. I'll do three astropaths as well. Um, I've got one, and then I'll do, I'll do, I'll do, I'll get two more, and then I'll do all three in one go. Um, and so it'll be. I don't know how. I've no idea how I'm going to do them. Um, but but I'll do all three in one go, and maybe there'll be different colours. Maybe they'll be like red, yellow, and blue, but like a, a darker. So they're like maybe. The subordinate subordinates of you know maybe they're disciples of the primaris side because I don't know so uh, yeah I need to do those but um, my work in progress at the moment are three uh, Katachan heavy mortars from Forge World um, so they're sort of ready to be painted so I'm going to start them tomorrow night and then after that I'm going to finish my Cadium Bane Blade which I've not touched for three years. Um, um, <laughs> so it's quite a shameful, a shameful is that, thing. Is that half painted, Jake, or is it uh, in classic Cadian colours, or is it? it um... It's uh, it's 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 half painted. So it's just got the green and 
tan stripes that I have on all my Cadian vehicles. Um, that that they're just airbrushed on. That they they need like crisping up, and um, so it's it's just green and and sandry dust at the moment. Um, which you know that doing that is kind of like a big step to go from not being painted to being camoed, and then I need to do all the extra stuff. But I'm excited about doing it. Um, and I want to do it because I'm. I've entered my first. I know this is the narrative podcast, but I've entered. I've entered my first ITC in February, and I feel like I need a bane blade, and I'm not going to get three done by then. So I need at least one. So that's my motivation for for getting it done. And I'm also taking three psychers to to that event as well. So um, that made me do my psychers. Um, so yeah, having an event actually any, makes any, you... any motivation it, it works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think events are one of the best motivations f- for anything, like especially to get certain units finished within your collection. You were talking about exactly that for attending Necromon tournament, right, Tony? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I basically <laughs> one of the things that kind of put a little back burner on my orcs for a month was throughout the entirety of October, I spent it painting up four eshes for my Necromunda gang. Because uh, I needed them for that Necromunder event. And I'm so glad I did. Even though one of them only got used in one game and died before she even got to do anything. But still, I'm glad she was there and she was painted. I didn't mention that, you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that, that's it, I think, from me. Um, I don't think that's a fair yeah. effort. Yeah. Over to you. Uh, yeah, so, like I say, I've, I've been a bit busy with loads of things this month so i've not got much away of like games played or like events attended or anything like that really but i have been doing a fair chunk of painting and i've been quite pleased with it um if anything i've i've kind of been on a bit of a like a terrain binge really (laughs) um so like like my daily thing when I'm at work at my lunch hour, I've been working on some more orc boys and um, the orc boss from Black Pass, Black Reach, something like that. Um, Sanct- Sanctus the... Reach. San- Sa- There's one beginning with an S. It could be completely wrong. It's just in my head. Sanctus. San- it was whichever starter box it was yeah. that was Crimson Fists versus orcs, and it's the uh, like the, the classic um, plastic orc war boss with the custom shooter and the power claw. Um, and I've had him for years and years and years, and I just wanted to get him painted, so I've just been painting him alongside these ten orc boys. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I got those finished. So just ten more orc boys for the green tide and a new boss to lead them. And I'm really pleased to say that I finally got him painted because he's such a nice model. Um, but that's almost by and by. Like that's just the thing that I've been doing in my lunch hours at work. The thing I've really been like cracking on with this month. So there's a whole load of different terrain stuff. Yeah, I actually feel like I'm getting closer and closer to having a a six by four sort of like jungle board finished soon. So I've completed um a set of the shard rack spines, um, which is the it's one of the Death World um, terrain pieces the Games Workshop sells, but it's the like really spiky, sharp, like rocky formation. Um, they're all yeah. covered in like, um, like a cave moss and lichen and stuff, and then they've got like ca- uh, skulls or like woven in the roots of it in the floor. Um, 
And then I've also finished the... I finally finished up the entire set of five craters that came in the Planet Strike crater set. So I'd previously finished the big, like, lava laser burn in the floor. Um, and the... I think that was it, really. Um, but I, what I have finished since then is the Blackstone Comets that have all uh, come crashing down. There's like a set of four of them, and I'm really pleased with those. They um, do look they, they do look very good. When I saw those, I was like, they're comets that have crashed. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a brilliant touch. And it's funny that that's probably like 10 years old now when it was originally released, but where they've kind of advanced the law, it just made sense to paint them up as Blackstone. Yeah. Because um, they're a valuable like bit of um resources so you know really helpful and useful on the battlefield um to basically people might be fighting over um but there's also a just like a big generic like multi-barrage crater um things so it's not just like one large crater it's sort of like covers a large area and it's about like seven or eight impacts all at once a bit like a set of mortars have been hitting the ground yeah i was gonna say a thud gun but um <laughs> yeah or thud gun um and then there's a there's a crashed satellite which um, it's kind of like ploughed its way in at an angle, so it's got like a bit of a, a, a trench in the ground behind it, and then a pile up of earth in front of it. Um, and I had a lot of fun painting that. So yeah, I actually got to try out Chris's technique for doing um, like exhaust burns on um, either like vehicle exhausts or on like weapon discharges. Um, and I actually found that really helpful. It's basically just a small series of wet blending with washers, um, but it's through things like a, a sort of yellowy sepia into a red, into a purple, into a black. Yeah. And it looks really nice. So I did that on the um, like exhausts of this crashed satellite, so that was really fun. And uh, like you were saying, that was just a new technique. I found a nice opportunity to try it out. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, Chris, for that. If you want to see his little tutorials on how to do that himself, uh, yourself even, you can go check him out over on Facebook at the Unrelenting Brush. Um, but the other thing that I got to try out with it was um, it it has this weird sort of like um, not a porthole, but I guess what could be described as sort of like a little oval window or like viewing deck of space or something on it and it could be painted up in a few different ways you could just do it as like a solid bare metal piece you could do it as like a glass panel um but i decided it actually looked really nice because it was the perfect proportions to just paint up as like a radar blip and i've yeah. been seeing a few of these things online that people have been doing mostly for things like um aeronautica recently I've been seeing a bit more of a resurgence in like radar blip effects that people have been painting. And I just really wanted to try it out myself. And I thought, hmm, why would this be a particularly important satellite if it's crashed to the ground? Well, maybe it's got coordinates or information or something relating to where something else is of importance. Maybe a way to represent that is, oh, look, this has valuable information. So here's a little radar screen built into it. Um, and I had a lot of fun painting that. Um, again, using a bunch of different sort of like tonal blends from dark greens to light greens, and then painting in the um, like the, the passing um, blip line and then the little indicators. So I had a lot of fun with that. 
It was a a nice little change of pace from using green to paint skin. (laughs) Um, So that was fun. Um, And then the last piece in the set is some um, Titan wreckage. So I think it's... The best way to describe it is kind of like the the concave part of a ball joint in like the shoulder joint of a Warlord Titan. Yeah. Um, that's basically, you know, crashed down into the ground and then like earth's thrown up around it. Um, so when you just see it as a piece of bare plastic, it's kind of quite nondescript because it's just exactly that. It's just a, a big sort of chunk of flat surface with this big concave point for a ball and socket joint. And I thought, oh, okay, how can I have fun painting this up and making it look a bit more visually interesting? And basically, I had a whole lot of fun adding things like um, hazard stripes and imperial production markings. So things like serial numbers and an Aquila stamp. Um, um, like left and right facing mount indicators and stuff like that. Um, and then went to town weathering it. Did you free paint those or do you use transfers? No, I used um, transfers. I I did, um, I hand painted on the hazard stripes. Because uh, okay. I've, I've got a technique for doing those I use on my Necromunda stuff. Um, but the actual like serial numbers and in, like Imperial Aquila and stuff, I used uh, like big transfers from the uh, from the Imperial Guard tank transfer sheet um so that was a lot of fun and i just had a lot of fun weathering it um, yeah it's always an interesting nice. choice as to whether you, you do that and break use transfers you can get obviously neater effects with transfers but um is a is a bigger challenge perhaps to, to free paint well, some of those things when i was i put the aquila transfer on and as it was on and i was starting to sort of like just tidy up the edges of the transfer it started ripping in places like unintentionally, it just kind of like disintegrated a little bit. And if it had been anything else, I'd have been like, oh, "Damn it, I'm gonna have to try and like you know, work that off now and clean it up and then put a new transfer on." And instead, I was like, "No, that's perfect. <laughs> it it looks <laughs> yeah, it, it looks weathered and damaged now." So I just kind of I just removed the bits that had flecked off, so it didn't look like they'd come loose and skewed position. They'd just come loose and flaked away. Um, and it looks great, so I was really pleased with that, actually. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad to say that I've got all five of those um, crashed um, like craters done, um, and the Shardrak Spines, and the Ten Orc Boys, and the Warboss. And that's the things I've finished. <laughs> um, well done. And then in a, yeah, and then in addition to that, like my main things I'm working on at the moment is... The fifth um, Death World Forest piece is almost done. Like the actual um, trees are done. Um, I'm just filling in the sort of like bracken and stuff on the floor that I've put onto the base. And then once they're done, I can just paint up the base and add the um, artificial plants, and that'll be done. Um, I've actually started painting one of my large um, city ruins that I've got, and I'm. It's not just like a small little corner building. It's the kind of thing that could fit like 20, 30 models like per floor if you really had to. And it's a big ruin. Um, but I was trying out a sort of like Xenophall spraying technique with spray cans for that. Oh, so yeah. I actually got um, so like base coats to it all in like Chaos Black. 
and then hit it with um, like a, an angle with the Mechanicus standard grey spray. And that basically did about 50% of it because I used that on the exterior walls. And then I actually used Sandry Dust at an angle on the interior walls. So that it's kind of got that exterior-interior building feel. Yeah. I've seen it done a few times in like Games Workshop stores or local gaming stores um, where having that differentiation between interior and exterior sort of like overall colouring really makes it feel like the building's been ripped open and you're kind of seeing the interior. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really impressed with how, you know, like realistically 90% of the work was done just by using the spray cans. Because after I did that, I um, I then did a, a Chaos Black spray on the broken and damaged edges of the wall. So again, it looks like it's been burnt in or broken in or whatever. So you can see where the damage has sort of like proliferated. Yeah. Did you, have you ever tried? Uh, this is it's like no, it's to do with this. But I remember seeing a thing about a reverse zenithal highlight, where like you do it from underneath, and then it like shades extra from. So if you do like a black from underneath or like a brown, you can like shade it from underneath rather than on top. Ooh, I've but, not tried that. I guess that uh, could work because it would kind of create the effect of leaving the top edge appearing more like a highlight because yes. it's not going to be as that's going to be lighter compared to the bit you've just darkened by doing a reverse centerfold. Yeah. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. Look it up. Oh yeah. Like before you try it. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Like get a sample piece trial as well, you know? Yeah. I've seen that done quite effectively, literally the other way around, with a, with a white undercoat first and then black from above, which sounds counterintuitive, but it, it worked really well for a particular faction. Oh, where did I see the tutorial on? It was Malifaux miniatures, where they were like a horror miniature. Um, so it, it, what it did was it made the outside of the miniature a little bit darker and drew your focus into the colour on each individual itself. Mm. And, and, and that quite worked quite well in a, a very particular kind of effect. I mean... Speaking of drawing the eye and doing things in reverse, the one thing that I always advise anyone is when it comes to painting flames, is actually look at how a flame appears and not how you think it appears, because it's really easy for everyone to assume that flames are brightest at the tips, because that's how you paint a lot of other things that are like highlighted with a colour. But actually, flames are brightest at the centre, at the base, at the source of the heat, and are darker and black and smoky at the tips. Yes. And I, I've it done looks exactly weird that. at first. Yeah, it feels weird when you're painting it, but it comes together when it's done, and it really helps draw the eye inward towards the middle of the model. Yeah, no, I mean, I've done it wrong. Oh, I've, right. <laughs> I, I've, I've done it wrong. I've, I've gone and done it, and then someone was like, that's the wrong way around, and then I looked and was like, oh, it doesn't look like fire at all when you put it next to fire. I mean, it looks fine, but it's wrong. Yeah, it, I've done it both ways, right and wrong. What I think you can break the rule with is if you're doing ethereal flame. If you're doing something that's like magical or haunted, I think they actually look a little better if the tips are the light bits, as if it's like... um it's dark magic as it were that's at the core yeah. of it and then as it gets to the end it's tapering out into a like an aether and just sort of dissipating 
I think it can work on ethereal stuff, but if you're trying to create realistic flame effect, it actually needs to be brighter at the bottom and darker at the tips. Or if you're doing flames on it as sort of a decal or a pattern on, onto a, a vehicle or a walker, where it's, it's a design rather than flame itself, you can get away with it being wrong too. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> that's a... I, I only know that because the most recent thing I did that on was actually the hairstyle of one of the Eshers the other month. Because um, she was the flamethrower armed Escher, so I painted her hair like it was like flames. <laughs> nice. Um, I was really pleased with that effect. Um, but yeah, so um, and then the other thing that I literally started not yesterday, the day before, was um, my new project at work now is the next looted wagon for my Death Skulls. So it's base code, and I've just started filling in all the. Uh, metallic areas on it but it's um it's a looted chimera it's got a big old energy zap cannon in a big turret on top of it and uh, i'm looking forward to getting that one painted so that should be fun for the next month cool we've all been so, busy sounds like, good yeah <laughs> sounds like we've all been up to lots of stuff that's like almost a whole painted army between <laughs> uh, such a, a random hodgepodge of valhallans and <laughs> orcs running around in a bunch of craters. Scenery to fight over, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> so we've got a game, Valhalla's versus Orcs, in a blasted-out battlefield. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorted. Um, however, where I have not been so busy is in games played, but thankfully you two have, so I think we'll move on now to the games played by Dave and Jake. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back now with games played. So, as I say, I mentioned already, but unfortunately I've not got any played this month, although I also don't think I'm probably going to get any played next month either, because it'll be Christmas and there'll be lots of family stuff and very little gaming time. But we'll see, I might get lucky. Maybe Santa will bring me some spare time. How about you guys? I've uh, I've played a few games I think uh, since since I was last on. Um, I've played I've played one one narrative game against Eldar, um, which was good. It was from uh, what was it from uh, Vigilus Defiant, which is the first the first Vigilus book, and we just. We just rolled for it and to see what we got. Um, so I didn't, we didn't go into it with a list in mind, and we didn't know who was going to be attacking, we didn't know who was going to be defending, and we didn't know what the mission was was going to be. Um, but the mission was hold your gains. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that, it's a kind of. Have either of you two played it? Firstly, I have played it. Yes, ah. I enjoyed it. Yes, I enjoyed it, but it's a. It's. I was defending. The Eldar were attacking. Uh, it was a seventeen, no, fifteen hundred point 
And but I, as the defender, you put a third up to a third of your power level. It says up to a third, so I guess it could be zero, or it could be one guardman, one guardsman squad, or one psyker. Um, but you put up to a third of your units, your units on the board to start the game, which is like a nine inch. Your deployment zone is nine inches from the middle of the board, and then the attacker sets up within twelve inches of the two short table edges, so they can envelop you quite easily um, and then the rest of your force comes on or can come on after turn in your at the end of your movement phase in, t in battle round two so in your move or the attacker gets first turn so when it gets to your second movement phase you roll a dice for each of your units um, and on a three plus they can come on um, and they come on within 12 inches of the long board edges which is like the defender deployment zone and the winner is whoever has the most power level within 12 inches of the middle at the end of the game um i think is that is that your understanding that's just off the top of my head yeah that that's basically it it's um so it's based on the arch type of you've got a, a la like a last stand force that are then waiting for a relief force to show up and help break the back of the um, besieging enemy um, and in this yes. case the thing that the, the thing that is all important is holding the thing that you've gained hence the name yes <laughs> so it's the idea is that the important MacGuffin is at the middle of the board and everyone is trying to make sure that they control it at the end of the game but it the that setup is you found it first, and now that they've found it, they've radioed in for their mates to come save them because the enemy are now bearing down on them. Yes, and uh, it's a it's a good fun scenario. I I've played it before where I've been attacking as the orc as an orc player, so it felt a lot of fun to actually be um, attacking a dark angel force that had like you know hunkered up in the center, and then they had their relief force coming in, which you know with Deathwing and Ravenwing felt quite nice as a relief force for that. So I had fun with it. So how did your experience? Uh, it was, well, it, it was good. I had um, a mix of uh, Astral Militarum and Custodians with a lot of, with a lot of infantry. So I had uh, Company Commanders, Cadians, three Psychers, three Infantry Squads, Two tech priests, platoon commander. Oh, and then I did have I had Pask uh, in a Lehman Rust with battle cannon, last cannon, plasma cannons, and then two tank commanders with, you know, the executioner, plasma cannon on top, last cannon, multi motors, um, and then my custodians were a patrol. So I had three mile squad of custodian guard, the defensor Vexilus. Praetor Defense, or whatever his name is, that gives a five invun to Imperium infantry that are wholly within nine inches of him. And then uh, the custodian big guy, Trajan. I don't know how to say that, but you know, the guy yeah, with the right. massive axe and the, and, the, yeah, <laughs> and the lion on his back. So, yeah, like a, some tanks, 30 odd infantry, three psychers, some commanders, and then some custodians to back them up, um, which seemed like a you know, a nice little. It had some power in there with the tanks, and but then, you know, you never know how it's going to go with them. Um, and so I threw all my infantry onto the middle to start the game, um, which mm -hmm. was a great idea because I could put my 
put my five plus in gun there. The other custodians are off the board. The tanks are off the board. But all my the psychers and all the infantry and the commanders were on the middle um, to weather it for two turns. And then uh, and then what happened was the Eldar assassinated the five plus plus guy in the in the very first psychic phase. So. <laughs> The oh, first thing that didn't happened even, was... Didn't, didn't even get to the shooting phase. He just died in the psychic phase. He died in the psychic phase. Uh, now, one... This is interesting, but one thing that happened was my opponent failed a power which would have done some mortal wounds, and I'm sure this is right. You can't do the same power again, even if it's failed. It's like one of the new things in... I don't know, the FAQ So if you do something and then it fails, apart from Smite, if you do it and it doesn't go off, then you can't then try it again with someone else. Um, and But he didn't know that. So I said, forget it, just you know, do it. And so he did it. He then did some mortal wounds. He then did another power, which went off and did more, more mortal wounds and killed him. So my... Um, <laughs> My uh, lackadaisical attitude to to the rules because not lackadaisical, you know, I was sort of he didn't know, and so I just said, yeah, it's fine, just do it. And then I lost this really important character that would have given everything a five plus plus for the entire shooting phase. Um, so I don't know what what do you guys think about that? Because it was an interesting thing. I was like, I've I've let this thing happen, and now I've played paid a really hefty price for it. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it forms part of the, the narrative of the game for me. I mean, not everybody knows the rules, and I'd rather have a fun game where I lose than uh, be a stickler for the rules. Yeah, uh, I, think... I, I think it's the kind of thing I'd want to look up later and educate both of us to see whether that would happen again. Uh, and then, then we, that's how we learn. But, uh... yeah. yeah, it sounds like it's a good opportunity to, you know, provide a learning experience for another player and so long as both of you were still having fun with it then it really doesn't matter you know like if you had a fun game regardless and if you felt like oh maybe this is now going to provide a a tactical challenge <laughs> that yeah. that you it would enjoy then great you know you know so long as it doesn't sour and ruin your experience of the game either then i think it's perfectly fine okay and i think you know if if all your fun is is locked into winning uh, I, I don't find that so much fun anyway. So uh, even though uh, losing badly can be just as much fun for me, if uh, if it's um, if there's something dramatic that happens, like exactly that. Yeah. Kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. See if you. I'll carry on telling how the how it went. And then see <laughs> see what you think about what happened later. So. So yeah, I I then I went on to lose lose everything on the middle. Uh, during the first and second turns on the first turn i i couldn't you know i had a handful of guardsmen i think i i think i had all my psychers but they they didn't do very well um yeah so come the second turn uh and the eld- elder had had their first and second shooting phases by that point i didn't have anything left in the middle and then i then i could bring on a role to bring on um my other my other stuff, and I managed to. I got I rolled for the two two tank commanders, and they both came on, and then you can pay one of the stratagems was to pay one CP and definitely bring on something, but before you rolled the dice for it. So then, because I had the two tank commanders, I then rolled I then paid a CP to definitely bring on Pask, and then I rolled for 
the rest of the custodians and the two tech priests who all came on. So I managed to get everything on on my turn two, which was um, which was nice. Uh, so they I mean, came off on. The bat, I'd say that that probably balances out the issue of ha- losing your early forces if actually you had the bulk of your remaining army show up all at once, which is also statistically unlikely to have happened, but it did. Yes, it did. Um, that that isn't the thing that happened. <laughs> that I was no, okay. <laughs> um, and so, so they all came on. Uh, they they did pretty well. They got rid of the Eldar avatar of Kane, or you know, their yeah, their sort of that big character guy that's two hundred odd points. Um, and they they'd all like consolidated into the middle because it goes on power level. So everything, you know, almost everything the Eldar had it gone into the middle like 40 guardians were there eight warp spiders the avatar was there and um, but i got rid of the avatar killed five they were now trying to hold to their new gains yes so then i killed the avatar killed five rangers um and killed all the warp spiders um so they did they did a lot of damage um and then i'd come on from the opposite side of the table from where the eldar's firepower was because they had a hemlock fighter on the other side and a wave serpent with five fire dragon dragons in and five dark reapers um so dark reapers got out fire dragons got out moved towards my tanks across the board the wave serpent zipped across the hemlock raced across the board right on top of pask pask took three wounds which was um from the from i think the hemlock uh, now the thing that happened was he forgot to advance his fire dragons, which made him about 13 inches away from my tank commanders, which meant he was out of range. And um, I didn't let him go back and advance them <laughs> because I was <laughs> like, well, you know, I was like, I lost this guy at the start. And I, you know, and I, and, and he was like, oh, I can't believe I've forgotten. And by this point, had the psychic phase it started shooting and then gone to shoot them and it's not really a, a narrative thing to do but i i was like I, I i just was like no you've and i no i didn't say no he didn't ask but then i didn't i didn't say i'll oh, go and do it like i did with the psychic power the psychic power i just went yeah do it um but with this i didn't i didn't say no because i don't think i yeah I, I just didn't offer i didn't say i'll go back and do it i was like well <laughs> you oh you're out of range but so you know maybe i don't know that was that feel that explaining it now it feels unsportsmanlike but i think at the time i was so i was so convinced i'd lost because of this one thing at the start i thought i'm not going to be able to hold this and then i'm just going to drip feed on um so he yeah he was he was then out of range with the fire dragons yeah a lot of people i play with um they um will will offer to to take it back um and uh, and say no no go back and do it it's fine and a lot of people say no i'm not going to do that i need to learn that's what i was going to say so i think like objectively from the one game here and now the question is if it felt like the game was going heavily in the favor of the elder anyway and you were very much struggling to get back in it and if it felt that those fire dragons were going to be the real last nail in the coffin. Then there's an argument for, well, if we 
if we hold to this, then at least that means that there's still a bit of gameplay to be had and we'll have some fun with it rather than just being whitewashed. But then also on top of that, like I say, a lot of people at that level are kind of thinking, you know, well, this is how I learn. You know, this is how you pick things up. And some people prefer to sort of stick to that mentality because otherwise if they just get used to playing with constant like takesy backsies yeah you just get into a habit of it and then you never actually even really start getting into better habits yeah and i think i think before the game it's probably at any level actually to just say there's no take backs or to say you can take back for like what you know one phase like if you forget something in the movement and then you do the psychic and you're into the shooting then you've 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 gone through a whole phase and you can't you can't go back because I think I think that was the thing is like if you've gone through a whole phase you've yeah that the game has changed kind of yeah As, and if you started shooting with other stuff um you you sort of yeah so yeah mate yeah so I, I don't know it's it was a and, and at that point I think it was maybe I don't know if it was balanced or not because I'd I'd got rid of the avatar. I'd got rid of some rangers and the warp spiders, and then he was coming after me. Had they been in range, the fire dragons, they could have killed one and a half tank commanders, maybe. Um, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, um, like I say, it's one of these things where, you know, earlier on in the game, you you know you provided an opportunity for him to you know get ahead with. Letting it, you know, being a good sportsman and just been, oh yeah, sure, go for this, do that, blah blah blah, and oh, okay, now, bit, bit, things are a bit more difficult for me. It's just swings and rounds about, you know. Now it's a matter of like, oh, life's a little bit difficult for him in that moment, but whatever, yeah. you know, now it's kind of almost balanced itself out. Yeah, I put myself in the same position in the past, uh, maybe not with fire dragons, but I'm sure with, mm. with other things. And the only person I'm annoyed with is myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's nothing to say that even if like. I mean, you say that he he didn't even sort of like ask as such, which says to me that he probably is already thinking himself. Is like, no, I'm just going to choose to live with that, you know? Yeah. Because if it had been if it had been really really upsetting him or getting him, he would no doubt have probably asked if he could move his guys. Yeah. So I I get that impression from that story that he was already thinking the same thing. He's just like, ah, no, I'm going to leave that because I'm going to learn to live with it. Yeah, he was quite beaty. BT up himself about it, you know, like I can't <laughs> believe I've done this and and such. So okay. So the fire dragons weren't in range. Pasclosk they passed lost six wounds, I think. Um but I I didn't I don't think I lost anything else. Um and then it was just, you know, who could get the most stuff because they had quite a lot of power level, you know, in uh the Hemlock, Guardians, um but I had more, so it was kind of like, could he kill? Could he kill enough of my stuff to not to to deny me the win? Um, yeah. And I uh, passed regained three wounds from the tech priest, which then put him back up into the top bracket. I didn't move any of them because because they could come on twelve inches from the board edge. They're sort of quite they're quite up there anyway. And in order to count towards the objective, they have to be within to- wholly within twelve inches of the middle, which is quite big um and so you know on the next turn they could have just rolled up so i just kept them all still and just and just blasted my way um into into them and 
uh, finished off the Helmlock, killed the Fire Dragons, killed all but one of the Dark Reapers, um, and a couple, did a couple of wounds on the Wave Serpent. And then from there, they they sort of struggled to to then do any significant damage. And um, my Custodians and Trajan got into combat, and that was... I've never really had... I think in the past when I've used them, I've used them against, I don't know, things like death shrouds or plague marines or you know stuff like that but against guardians it was <laughs> horrific absolutely yeah. horrific um and i think it killed you like just 50... min through chaff you and it's like that yeah i think it killed like 15 um because trajan can fight twice it's one of his things um um you, you can like regain some wounds he can regain some command points or he can fight twice like you pick one it's, you know whenever you want to want to do it and that's it for the battle you can do one of them um mm. yeah so so yeah and then after that it was kind of like yeah uh you've won um but it was a it was a good game because i when my custodian died on the first turn i just said I'm, i've lost and then to then lose all that infantry and then to like come back like that was quite a you know he was he was definitely winning and then I was sort of winning and then I was definitely winning. So it was quite a, a swing of a game. Um, and it was, a, it was a fun mission as well. The whole third thing, I think putting a third on is a good idea. I think if you just put one on like a, a little bit, it's not really in the spirit of the mission because then you're just relying no. on like a, on like a big beta strike later um, and, and getting everything on later. Beta strike. I've not heard that before. That's a really good phrase. <laughs> I've heard that quite a lot. That's quite a uh, recently. Oh. I've heard it quite a, quite a few, quite a lot. Where, yeah, yeah. Sorry. You get yourself in a position to do a big, big weapon strike later in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that was that was that was the only narrative game that I've played, um, and it was good. I've got another one actually next on Monday. Uh, against a different Eldar player, seventeen hundred and fifty points, um, and we'll we'll roll for a mission there, and I'll probably re-roll it if it's that one again because it would be <laughs> it would be unfair, I think, for me to play the same mission twice within the space of well, a couple of weeks. You'll have to tell us how uh, how that one goes in as well because it's it sounds like you are enjoying venturing into more of the narrative missions. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's, it. it's odd because I'm like being pulled in these two. You know, I enjoy the narrative stuff, and then I've got this ITC thing coming up. And and another game that I played was against Orcs, and and uh, the guy that I played brought basically an ITC list that he had that he had to hand, and I got absolutely destroyed. Um, but it was a fun game, and it was an interesting learning experience. But I'd not played this guy before, so he just brought what he had to hand, which was the list he took to Blood and Glory. And I brought some. I brought my Valhallans because I'd just finished them, so I brought like thirty Valhallans, some Cadians, three Hellhounds, uh, and uh, yeah, I just got absolutely. I think he had twelve Smasher guns. And yeah. the shock. I remember see. I remember seeing this picture on one of your socials. Yeah, like twelve, fifteen smasher guns or something. Yeah, and tractor cannons and two shock attack guns, and one of them was the relic, and it was just. It was, it was just orc artillery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and two lots of uh, thirty boys. 
with the jump. Yeah. So here's turn one, here's turn two, deal with yep. those. Yep. Um, anyway, so uh, I've had other games as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's... That's the main highlight. That's me. Good. Yeah. Well, h- how about you, Dave? What, have, what games have you played? Yeah, I've played two games, I think, since we last recorded. One was a narrative game and, and one was more an ITC prep for, for, for somebody that's preparing for a tournament soon. Uh, for me, the narrative one was a little bit more interesting. It was a it was a rematch <clears throat> with Mike from from our club to Leader Six Lodge in Cambridge, and uh, I've talked before about playing against Mike's Custodes Army against my uh, mixed Rainbow Warrior Renegades with other chapters who uh, turn their backs on the Imperium and need hunting down by Mike's Custodes. And the first time we played, he you know we played down the long end, long long ways down the board. Um, and he was attacking this remote mining colony where we had this secret meetup, and uh, it, it was very close. I managed to win in the final turn of that one, um, and then we came back uh, for for a rematch uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we again we made up the last time we made up our own scenario. This time we made up our own scenario, and again it was it was remote. Um, I had got the first. I'd not finished painting my Black Legion quite by that point, but I wanted to get them on the tabletop. So I took an, uh, a, a deliberately unbound list of a mix of uh, Black Legion, Chaos, Space Marines, and, and Rainbow Warrior, regular Marines. So I had um, two tactical squads, a Devastator squad, a, a captain, a lieutenant, um, and then nine Chaos Bikers, a Rhino with eight Berserkers in, and I had something else. Yes, Terminators for both, uh, for both as well. So I had... Um, Two squads of Terminators, one Rainbow Warrior and one Black Legion, um, against his his custodians. A slightly different list from him, so he'd got uh, masses of, of jet bikers, the, the chaplain that, that helps reinforce them, and uh, and the dreadnought. <clears throat> and the dreadnought was my undoing. No, that's not fair. <laughs> my undoing was the fact that uh, I, when I first came on this uh, podcast, Tony, you asked me what in real life, in real life, what will my warlord, personal warlord trait be? And I think I said I, I was the uh, chosen champion of Nuffle. <laughs> and, uh, yep. He really, really came into play in this game. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was good fun. We played, it was normal deployment. Uh, so uh, deployed on the long edge within 12 inches. And we chose, chose to play uh, on the... Uh, on the top of a mountain. So the idea was it was a remote top of a mountain. So we use the high altitude rule that we talked about before from Phoenix Horizon. Um, A good good scenario, sort of narratively, to use that in, yeah. So the only thing that we we did differently was that uh, we didn't have the six inches around the edge because it wasn't on top of a platform. It was on top of a mountain, so we said we use the whole table edge. Uh, So we didn't have the gap around the edge. But we did do with the destabilized platform thing on the premise that, you know, we were surrounded by cliffs and there may be rock falls or avalanches or whatever that that get models around the edge. So within the nine inches, uh, we we did do that. And and the gusting winds high rule, which we were quite interested in because um, although I didn't have any flyers, of course, Mike had quite a lot of jet bikes and he was up for that. Uh, and that was good. That's cool. The only, yeah, the only problem with that is you roll the d6 and choose like table edge one, two, or three, or four, uh, which way it comes from. And for the first three turns, we rolled five, so there were no <laughs> gusting winds. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So that was yeah. Uh, uh, it just played out a bit funny, uh, but but basically, I might might what's across yeah. the table so with his dreadnought. You, you were trying to use essentially a weather table, and yeah. Nuffle was having none of it. 
Absolutely. And every time I shot a las cannon or something that could actually damage the dreadnought, I got one for damage. And I kept using my command points to re-roll. And it was like you like playing Blood Bowl. You roll a one and re-roll it and you get another one. <laughs> and, you know, needing threes to hit and I'm rolling twos cause, so I can't even re-roll them with my captain. <laughs> it was just one of those games. And, you know, we were laughing about it. You can't help it. Your dice sometimes go against you and that's just the way it is. But it made for a real quite a quite a strong game quite short we finished at the end of turn four because i <laughs> i uh, oh he had an assassin in there as well which helped take out some of my tactical squads which uh, was fun we wanted to get the assassin into close combat and just see how that worked and that was interesting it wasn't quite as powerful as we thought it was going to be uh, but th that was a fun little part of it uh, but yes more or less i was just taken out in short order my uh, rhino with the Berserkers in was blown up quite quickly, which then exploded, which then caused a load of mortal wounds because um, because of the uh, destabilized platform rule. <laughs> and a lot of my guys were deployed close enough to the edge that it would take effect on them. Uh, so I'd, I'd started racking up points immediately, and then I just couldn't damage that. And even when I teleported in the Terminators, they should have should have been able to take some wounds off it. But it was just um, it was like. Um, just pinging off him like he didn't care <laughs> so uh yeah it was very narrative it's almost like you know the sort of extremes of combat that you read about in the black library fiction where where one army almost seems to take no damage and the other one's devastated it's just that i was on the the less fortunate side but it was still a great game we really enjoyed it and i, I don't mind losing badly when it's so strong like that and of course the uh, the imperium should come in and do away with the nasty renegades so uh, it was it was an awful lot of fun um and uh, yeah, we tried the theatre war, the high altitude one. I think we definitely want to try that again. It just didn't work for us this time. Cool. Well, at least you had fun with it, you know, even if Nafal yeah. didn't want to particularly highlight its features for most of the game, it still sounds like it, you know, it had a, a noticeable impact. So that was the narrative game. Uh, we quite enjoyed that with Mike. That was great. Uh, and then, then last Friday, I played a competitive game against another lad at the club, Paul, who's preparing for an ITT, ITC um tournament uh, exactly the same way as jake described um, <laughs> and that's my games played really awesome did you, did you play with well, the itc rules or did you just play a normal game yeah i mean yes uh, so there was a rule pack we rolled for the mission uh, we we had the it was a long ways again we got the long ways one and uh, we played with the rules like uh, ground floor blocking and then the, we were recording uh, victory points every turn so yeah more units and all that kind of stuff and first strike and last strike and kill the slay the warlord and all that kind of stuff that you get in the itc pack yeah cool well, it's nice nice to mix it up still though you know it's, it's it's just more ways to play speaking of ways to play i think that's a good segue into our main topic so i think that's everything from our games played so we will be back in a moment guys do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative player content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. 
We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative player content from the Grimdark. So we have finally made our way round to tonight's main topic, which is eight rules you should try in your games of 40k. Now, it's quite a simple concept really, but uh, I mentioned at the top of the show that the idea is this is a like a small little selection of not house rules, but rules that exist within publications by Games Workshop out there today, which are not actually part of the core 8th edition rule set, but to be honest, I think they could be. And I think a lot of people would benefit from trying uh, some of these rules, so we're going to go through them one by one, and we're going to have a little discussion about them and see what you think. And you might find that you want to try some of them in your own games of 40k. And if you do, great, I want to hear all about it. So, um, I've got a little list of them here, and I think we'll start with a simple but a good one. And that is the Lucky Shots rules from Cities of Death in Chapter Approved 2018. So this is basically the universal rule that unmodified hit rolls of a 6 to hit always hit. It's the, the, the first time when I read this the first time, I thought, eh. but it's kind of, depending on what you're playing, it probably would I guess it counters all the minus to hits that you get with Eldar and like you get them on Plague Bearers and you get them on Raven Guard now. I guess it it would change those sorts of games quite a lot. It would, yes. Now it is, as you mentioned, kind of a sort of edge case thing because to be in a situation where one player is using an army and is firing with unit A against target B, and there are so many modifiers in place that it takes their to hit roll to a 7+, plus, and therefore becomes impossible to make. Um, it's not going to come up too often, but it does come up. Like Particularly guard and tower players uh, can suffer from it if they have like regular Eldar or, like you say, like Raven Guard or successors. Um, opponents and um, I think Alpha Legion similar or have some similar strats, I can't quite remember but it it's one that it still baffles me that this isn't a rule Yeah, like a, like a 6 is always a success, I remember that from the past I think um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, It's just very absurd to think that you know, uh, an, an Aliotok aircraft with lightning reflexes, it's like minus three to hit. So suddenly, like guard and tau, literally just can't hit them. And orcs, uh, orcs can because orcs have their their racial rule daka daka daka, which has inbuilt into it the fact that any un, unmodified rolls of a six to hit not only automatically hit regardless of modifiers, but also in their case allow you to then generate an extra shot. Now, don't get me wrong. 
Orcs are the ones who are kind of in need of it the most because they only base BS5 plus army. You know, so it only took two minuses to be able to stop them from interacting. But the fact that, you know, the Orcs have this, the fact that it's introduced in Cities of Death because in that system you introduce things like soft cover, hard cover, and partial targeting, which means that there's another layer of potential negative modifier. Um, it seems like that's Games Workshop almost acknowledging that it's only one more universal modifier away from being necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the other the other other game systems where I've seen something similar. Sometimes, ask if you roll a six, you can roll an extra dice to see whether you actually hit. So, bolt action. Um, you need uh, to roll a six again uh, to get anything think... seven plus. I think Necromunda actually has a thing for that called Improbable Shots. Yeah, um, that's where, right. Yeah, I think it's like if a thing would take you to worse than a 6 plus to hit, if you roll a 6, you then roll a dice, and I think you have a 50-50 chance, regardless of situation, of actually hitting the target. Um, yeah, so it, it's an interesting one. I think I think it's quite a nice one. If you're wanting to play a, rule, um, a game where you've got... Um, where, where both sides have got a greater chance. And, you know, it's still one in six. It's, it's not everything. But where that you want that weight of fire to be taken into account, um, This I think this is quite a nice rule to try and reflect that. Of course, it doesn't affect your wound rolls. You've still got to pass your armor, get past armor and things like that. So it's only a small uh, small assistance for those, avoiding those impossible shots. But it just increases that base concept that they try to introduce into a tradition where anything can actually damage anything. And it, yeah, and it brings that back a little bit. That's a good point. It's weird how you know any weapon can wound anything on a six. So why yeah. is it not the case that any weapon can hit anything on a six? Yeah, that's a that's yeah that's an interesting point. That um, <laughs> because that 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 was a I don't know it wasn't a selling point, but it was a thing that was brought up when eighth was being talked about because they got rid of the wound wound table. It was faster. Anything Ooh, yeah. can anything can wound anything. Yeah, but it's Lance not guns the case can kill him. land raiders. Not that a land gun has ever killed anyone's land raider, but it can do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure we could work out how many Imperial Guard last guns it would take to knock a wound <laughs> all the time, couldn't we? There's an app for that. <laughs> yes, there is. There is an <laughs> what, app. What would that be called, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> would that be Math Hammer? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> No, that, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, not where I was going with that. That was not the intended uh, the side effect. But it brings back some of that flavour. Jake was like, just taking like, a lucky shot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You've all the six. Yeah, it's a simple one. Like it, It's just, it, it's such a feel-bad moment when someone pops two CP on a strat or whatever um, and just literally says, you can't shoot this. Just literally, all your your entire army cannot interact with this thing now, and like non interaction is just not fun. Yeah, like, it's it's entirely strategically sound if you're trying to win the game. Like you know, if if you're playing in a competitive game, then yeah, sure do that because there's nothing more powerful than literally not being able to be targeted. But it's not fun, and it seems weirdly like. You're just like story breaking. Why can't yeah? I get that you know, guardsmen 
are going to struggle to hit that, you know, Eldar Exarch in his aircraft. He's going to know what he's doing to try and, you know, avoid the worst that the you know, useless human monkeys firing lasers at him are going to achieve. But that doesn't mean that they can't get lucky. They can't just yeah. put so many bullets into the sky that it's impossible for any skilled pilot to avoid taking any damage. Yeah, because if you, you know, you could theoretically have, you could have six squads with first rank fire, second rank fire, which gives you six times 37 shots, um, which is a lot of shots. And to say that that just doesn't count is kind of, yeah, because one, one of them is going to hit, right? Yeah, but as it currently stands, it doesn't. So, yeah. you know, it's a simple rule. It's not going to break your games. But it's it's not even going to come up that often, or even in that many games. But when it does, if you're using that as a, a house rule, then it, you're going to make it more interactive for yourself. And on some level, I think it would feel better to use this as a rule than, say, house rule that you don't use lightning reflexes on yeah. your Eldar aircraft. Because... Yeah. That seems like you're penalising that particular army, that particular unit, that particular strat. Whereas if you're just saying that, well, no, it would still make sense that this is important fighter is going to use evasive manoeuvres at this moment in time to try and improve his survivability, but doesn't just make him instantly indestructible. Yeah. Yeah, so, and if you household in kind of way, this is this is a better way of doing it because then both sides benefit. Mm-hmm. And it's there's still possibilities. Yeah, sure. It's harder, but it's still possible. That's a good one. I think yeah, I should uh, look for an opportunity to try it. But then, also speaking of flyers, the second rule that I just cannot believe is not actually a thing in the core rules of the game yet is the leaving combat airspace rule from the Death from the Skies expansion, which coincidentally, is in the core rulebook, just not in the core rules section. So, I honestly played about a year to 18 months of second, not second edition, of 8th edition 40k, before I didn't, before I even realised this wasn't a core rule, oh. to be honest. Right. Um, like, the playgroup I was playing with at the time. It was, yeah. In 7th, it was. So this is the thing that, in 8th edition, uh, actual flyers, like flying uh, the flyer battlefield roll units, anything with a minimum move, basically, if its minimum move would force it to move off the table edge, it counts as destroyed. Like, that's as it currently is. But, in 7th edition, it was just... If your minimum move took you off the table, you went back into reserves. Yeah. And then you would continue to roll for reserves um, in following turns to return to the battlefield because, you know, you've gone off to either refuel or you had to evade enemy attention. So you've flown out of the effective combat zone to, so you could avoid damage or you're trying to escape someone who's tailing you or whatever. But you're going to come back. You're an aircraft. It actually, if anything, helped add this sense of. Um, real speed and momentum to them where actually they'd overshoot a portion of the battlefield and have to spend some time turning around to come back and do another run. Whereas, that's not a thing at the moment in 8th edition. Now what happens is one of two things. 
most aircraft only being able to turn once in a turn end up either flying around the edge of the board just in a big square yeah or they fly in a diamond directly over the um from like the middle of the table edges to the next middle of the table edge yeah finding a diamond pattern and it just doesn't feel very diverse you get aircraft that kind of get locked into a certain flight pattern based on deployment, which just means they just loop around all game. Yeah, when when do they come back? So if you if you go out, you know, if you lose so, turn two yeah. movement, when do you come back? So I'll just read it to you. So this so this is in the core rule book. It's just in the advanced rules section where you've got things like um, the planet strike, stronghold assault, and um, Death from the Skies, but you don't yeah. have to use all the Death from the Skies stuff. You know, we've done an episode on that, and I really like it, and I highly encourage people to try the full rule set and use dogfighting and vehicle arcs and all the rest of it. That's really cool, but you don't need to do all that. If you just want to add this one rule, it'll make your games of 40k so much more intuitive with your flyers. So, it reads as in an exception to the minimum move section of the core rules, flyers can move off the edge of the battlefield. Indeed, because of minimum moves, some may be forced to do so. These flyers are said to have left combat airspace. They can attempt to return to combat airspace at the end of their next movement phase. To do so, roll a dice. On a one or a two, they have been delayed and do not arrive this turn. But you can roll again in your next turn. On a 3+, plus, the flyer arrives and is set up on the board as follows. Place the flyer touching any battlefield edge facing any direction and move it directly forwards up to 6 inches. It cannot turn again. Flyers are always assumed to have moved their maximum distance when arriving on the battlefield in this manner. Any flyer that has left combat airspace and has not re-entered by the end of the game counts as destroyed for the purposes of any victory conditions. Which I think is fair enough. Yeah. But that's it. It's basically just... Constant three plus reserve roll from the end of your next movement phase. So when things like deep striking units would arrive, yeah, I like it. It adds like a different. It suddenly allows your aircraft to actually make that decision to maneuver somewhere one turn, so they can drop a bomb on a critical target. They can get line of sight on a key unit. They can do whatever they need to do to position themselves for that turn at the expense of next turn they're going to be leaving the battlefield and they can't do anything about it but if anything it also gives you the opportunity to try and escape some enemy flyers or other units like oh this unit's going to get gunned down if it doesn't leave this turn I'll voluntarily fly off the board and go into reserve because then at least it gets an opportunity to return to the battlefield and commit a beta strike before yeah. it risks getting sh- uh, shot at again. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't have any flyers. I, I do have flyers. They're not, <laughs> they're not painted, but I'd like, you know, I like this. I like it. Yeah, I was going to say it's not something I've come across. That flyers are not, are not strong in the, uh, the group that I played, and I've, I've not used one in Eighth Edition. The last time I used a flyer was a Valkyrie in my, my Inquisition Planet of the Apes list uh, in Seventh. So, I mean, like, I genuinely discovered that this wasn't the case about six months ago when um, I was playing a game um, 
against a, a local Dark Angels player, and I'd moved my Burner Bomber one turn where it allowed it to drop its bomb on a key target. Um, but it meant that next turn it was going to have to fly off the table. And obviously we were just playing a casual, friendly game. Um, and after I dropped the bomb, like I'd, I'd moved on into the following turn. So it was in the movement phase of my following turn, I just went, right, I'm going to pick this guy up and you know put him into reserve um, because he can only fly off the table this turn. And uh, like my opponent said at the time, what, what do you mean going to reserve? I was like, oh, he's leaving combat airspace. So he just goes back into reserve, and then next turn on a free plus, he can potentially come back, um, and then he'll fl- carry on flying around. He might not. He might take him another turn. I don't know. That's the gamble that I chose to take by placing him here so that last turn he could uh, strategically drop this bomb on this key target. And he was like, oh, I wondered why you'd put him there, because I knew he was going to die if he did that. And I was like, I didn't realise he could leave and come back. And when And I sort of replied, like, what, you would just count as dead? I didn't realise he would just count as dead if he'd left the board. <laughs> and and we were both like, oh, okay, well, sure, let's just do that. You know, we'll just roll for reserves for it for next turn. And I was like, I know I've seen this in the rule book. That's why I thought it was, that's how it played. Because I know I've seen it. I've read it in an 8th edition rule book somewhere. And I went home that night and had to dig through and found it and realised it was technically in the Death from the Sky section and therefore not in the primary core rules. But it is in the core rulebook. And I was like, why are people not just choosing to use this? Why is this just not a thing? I suppose if, if you... If it only comes... Say it only comes back on a three, I guess it reduces your firepower. And so maybe people but go, oh, I don't want that. The other thing, though, is just because that's as an option doesn't mean you have to leave yeah. the board. There's nothing stopping people from still flying in the square slash diamond flight patterns that people currently do because other, to do otherwise is to die. Yeah. <laughs> that is still as legitimate an option for anyone out there but this provides a second option where actually you can choose to leave but then you're taking that pay, uh, that that balance of you might not necessarily come back next turn. Yeah, and we've all had units that never appear for reserve, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a gamble and the gamble has both up and downsides to it. So I wouldn't even say that it's like it's too powerful to play or anything like that. It's I just yeah. I I think it adds a lot more freedom and another level of like tactical nuance to flyers, which at the moment I think is something they could do with. Because to be honest, a lot of the time they're just used as extreme jump units quite often for like character sniping and stuff, which just doesn't feel to me, like how aircraft typically would play on that scale of a battlefield. No. But as a side note, if you did choose to use these rules, um, there is also an additional stratagem that you could then use, which again, this is if people like using the combat airspace rules and you choose to take it a step further, but this you don't have to do. Um, but this is the refuel, rearm, repair stratagem, which is has a variable CP cost of between one to three CP, depending on how many of the benefits you choose to use. And this is um, you use this stratagem as soon as one of your flyers leaves combat airspace. If you spend one CP, the aircraft automatically re-enters combat airspace at the end of your next movement phase. Ah. You don't need to roll. If you spend two CP. 
The aircraft also regains any weapons that are described as being used with a limited number of times during a battle, such as bombs. Like a bomber. <laughs> yeah. And if you spent three CP, the aircraft also regains D3 wounds. So you've got refuel, rearm, repair. Nice. Which, that, as I say, that I think is a, another nice stratagem. You don't necessarily have to include that just in your standard games. And if you do like the sound of that stratagem, then maybe take a look at the full extended um, system for dogfighting and the full Death from the Skies rules. But in this example, even just using the you can leave combat airspace without dying, I, I don't get why that isn't a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one to bring up next time I'm facing somebody with flyers. Yeah, definitely. Especially if um, both of you have got multiple flyers. I think it would really add... Um, a new literal dimension to the game. Yeah. <laughs> nice. See what you did there. Uh, <laughs> um, and then the next one that I wanted to talk about was the Terrors of the Warp rule from the core rule book. I'm just going to find it now. So this is one of the standard battle zones in the rule book, right? Yeah, so this is a rule taken from one of the standard battle zones in the narrative play section of the core rulebook. So the intention is that the battle zone as a whole is meant to be a sort of like, you know, psychic maelstrom battlefield sort of deal. Um, but as part of one of the rules within that um, is the Terrors of the Warp rule. I just cannot lie for me find it. Uh, let's have a look. I I I feel like I might have used this. Yeah, so a little bit similar to the leaving combat airspace thing. This is essentially a callback to what was a seventh edition core mechanic of the game, taken into an eighth edition version. So this is from Battlezone Psychic Maelstrom which includes like um, three separate rules, um, the warp overflow, psychic amplification, and mortal peril. So this is just sort of like lasering in on using the mortal peril rule. So the mortal peril rule says um, that if a psyker suffers um, a perils of the warp, they instead suffer a terrors of the warp, um, which basically is a D6 table rather than just the... Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, user for D3 model wounds. So, the perils table is a concept that's been in 40k for many editions. Um, in 8th edition, they simplified it down to just user for D3 model wounds. Cool. However, the terrors of the warp table has six possible results that happen to your psyker whenever they perils. So, I'll just quickly run through these. One, uh, is a fate worse than death. The Psyker suffers six mortal wounds. Ah. If they are slain by this, your opponent may place a Chaos Spawn model under their control where the Psyker was standing or as close as possible. Wow. Sure. Two, Overload. The Psyker suffers D3 mortal wounds. Sounds familiar. If they are slain by this, each unit within six inches suffers D3 mortal wounds. So that basically is the current perils effect. Yeah. 
So noticeably, if you roll the one, while he turns into a uh, well, while he suffers six mortals, and if he does die, he turns into a spawn. If he dies, he doesn't explode. He doesn't cause mortals to everyone else around him. That's only if you roll the two and he suffered the d three and died. If you roll a three, a door closes. The psyker immediately forgets the psychic power that they were manifesting. They cannot manifest this power for the rest of the battle. But you're not suffering d three mortal wounds in that case. Just forgetting the power. Yeah. Four. Time slip. The psyker may immediately attempt to manifest an extra psychic power in this phase, even one they have already manifested. So actually, now you're looking at there's a chance of getting a positive outcome. Yeah. Five. Possession. Roll 2d6. If the total is greater than the psyker's leadership characteristic, which on 2d6 is not likely to happen you're more likely to probably pass that for most psychers i don't know aren't uh, jake's primary psychers <laughs> still still 50 50 and only slightly um, more in his favor but True. Uh, if you do fit if the result is higher than the psychers leadership characteristic they are possessed and controlled by your opponent for the rest of the battle at which point you'll be glad the Commissar immediately executes the Primaris Psyker. Yeah. Um, uh, six, Transformation. Until your next Psychic phase, the Psyker has a Strength characteristic of 10 and an Invulnerable save of 2+. plus. <laughs> because wow. you've just become overpowered with Psychic Energy. Hulk, now, turn into the Hulk. So when you look at that, of the six results, two of them are pure upside. You got an extra power, or you get to have strength ten and a two plus save for a turn. Cool. Two of them don't cause you to suffer any mortal wounds. One is um, you just forget the power you're casting, and one tests against your leadership and potentially has no effect, or potentially yeah, sure, it becomes an enemy model for the rest of the game. Cool. But technically, there's a chance that they fail perils again and get possessed again and then come back to you. <laughs> um, and only actually two of the six results cause mortal wounds in any way. Um, and only one of those results in an explosion of mortal wounds if the Psyker dies. So suddenly, rather than just suffering D3 mortals and exploding if you die, you're kind of looking at a uh, a freeway split between mortals, some negative effect that isn't mortals, and some positive effect. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice change, isn't it? Mm. It's still, it's still the same. It's still on. It's still on double six, double one, isn't it? Though. Yes. Yeah. In the, well, no, that's the thing that I was specifying is that I suggest that you just use your stand. No, no, no. You just use your standard perils rules. It's just that rather than automatically suffering D3 mortal wounds, oh, you, you, use the table. Um, you just roll on this table instead. Because the battle zone Psychic Maelstrom includes stuff for things like any doubles, plus two to casts and denies, lots of crazy shenanigans. This is just, I'm proposing that rather than your perils being D3 mortal wounds, the perils is you roll on the table. Yeah, okay. 
But it's worth doing. We've, you know, over the last few episodes, we've talked about several different things you can do to, to make things a bit more uh, psychic aware, to make the, the, you know, the warp a little bit thinner in your battle zone. And this is a, another nice option to add that, I think. It gives it a is, bit more yeah. flavour to what's actually happening. I mean, essentially, I view it as it's a callback to 7th edition and many editions before where perils was not just a predetermined outcome. It tended to be a table of varying things and for those that liked that in past editions there is a table of varying perils effects that exist within 8th edition it's there so if you want to use it just go look it up and use it yeah i like it i mean i get that that one is one that is definitely more aimed at narrative play and just casual games you know that is more injecting fun and a bit more chaoticness to the perils mechanic than, say, streamlining or adding something that feels like it should be there, like we mentioned with the two previous rules. This is more a, if you really just want to amp up the the fun side of your casual games of Psychers, give this table a whirl. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll suggest it to my opponent next time I play against Grey Knights. And that one, <laughs> again... <laughs> That is in the core rulebook. It's right there. You don't even need additional publications. Um, then, this next one is one that I think has been a little bit of an amalgamation of different places, but it's basically a universal dangerous terrain rule. So, over the past two years, there's been a couple of different publications that have had slightly varying effects on this based on um, what game rule set it was in, be it Cities of Death, or be it Stronghold Assault, based on if it was applied to certain terrain pieces um, or certain stratagem effects or whatever, but currently, there isn't a universal rule for dangerous terrain. You've just got things like cover saves have been in cover. Technically, there's stuff for things like minus two for charging through woods and forests and stuff like that, and uh, craters. But what seems to be the consensus whenever Games Workshop has produced something that's assumed to be dangerous, so like a minefield or a building that's on fire or some other similar thing, the consensus seems to be that whenever a unit would advance or charge through that dangerous terrain piece, you roll a dice per model in the unit, and on a one, that unit suffers a mortal wound. Oh, so you can move through it normally without fear of... Yes, hurt, but it's that's if you're, the key thing. If you're going quickly through it. Yeah, if you're not taking the time to be careful in the hazardous environment, if you're advancing or charging, you then roll a dice per unit model. I like it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've not, um, I tend not to uh, to do that kind of thing anyway. I guess I can't think of an occasion in one of my games when it's come up, but it's it's a neat little rule for. for but so yeah, so this is one where. It's true that there are um, individual terrain rules in current publication for each individual terrain kit that Games Workshop produces. And if you want to use those, you can do. And personally, I like to, things like the grapple weeds from the Death World Forest that actually uproots and chases units. I think it's hilarious. But you don't need to blanket rule apply that to all Death World Forests. You know, it would get a bit silly. <laughs> Um, things like the thermic plasma vents and stuff, they have rules for 
um, if you roll a six while making a cover save with them, there's then chances that they spew some plasma onto the units hiding in them and cause mortal wounds. These rules exist, but they're all quite bespoke to the individual terrain piece, whereas this is a universal dangerous terrain rule that allows anyone with any kind of collection to say, this is a, a burning building, this is a minefield, this is wrecked vehicles that still have live munitions in them, whatever, whatever fits your collection, if you just feel that your terrain does nothing other than look pretty and sometimes block line of sight, this is a way of being able to just universally say these two, three, four pieces across the board, those ones are dangerous. Yeah. Probably change games quite a bit, you know, when you've got, especially if you've got stuff charging and, you know, you could position things, because you can't really do that at present, you know, but because I've played the, is it forests that are minus two to charge through? Forests and craters, which I think is very odd. They provide no positive benefit other than the fact you are in cover, but they provide no better benefit than any other piece of cover that doesn't slow your charge distances. I do think it's a bit of an odd rule. Yeah. The other thing as well with them, and I found this, is if if you've got models, you know, if you packed into a piece of terrain, you can charge somebody without going over the over the piece of terrain. So if you're at the edge, you can be within an inch without ever going onto the terrain. Which I think is yes. like it, you know, it needs to be worded like if you charge something that's in this piece of cover because otherwise because I've had it where I was in the cover I was at the edge they charged me and there was no negative impact because they technically didn't go through the terrain because I was within an edge inch of the edge of it which yeah I don't know it's it's a little nuance to it it is yeah. Um, and I think that this is just a nice way of sort of adding that you could add that clause like you say if you're advancing or charging you know into or through you know dangerous terrain then yeah. apply this rule um, I mean I yeah. I've used it in the past where I've set a unit up in the middle of a dangerous terrain piece using these rules and then like a unit of striking, uh, striking scorpions have charged into them uh, but they've genuinely like second guess whether to commit to the charge or not because of the mines and actually yeah they lost two of their number on the way in which was more than I expected to happen but it made a big change to that combat as a result yeah the other, the nice thing about this is it's on a one on a one a model suffers a mortal wound so if you're going in with like a big group you could actually lose quite a few um and like there's other yes, things like but there's, the but at the same time, is you get to pick um, who where the mortal wounds are applied. It's you roll a dice per the individual, but the unit suffers a mortal wound per ones. So you don't have to do that thing of I'm going to roll for the melter gun guy. He yes. rolled a one, so he's dead. Yeah, you That's just take out. The, yeah, you just take yeah. out the cheap guys. What I was thinking was there's a there's a stratagem for the catacham, which is um, it's called vicious traps, I think, where when someone charges you and you're in cover or in terrain. You, they suffer D three mortal wounds, which is just really not impressive for two CP. Because if it's like twenty play bearers, it's not gonna mm. it's not gonna change anything. Whereas with this, it actually would make you think: Ah, oh, 
It's relevant I, I, to the number of people charging through it. Yeah. Yeah. You you could lose quite. You know, this is this could be a big deal. So yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, and then uh, next two points are they're a little bit more for match play focus, but they're based around like the deck building mechanics in Maelstrom missions. So the first one is one that is very popular and is in mainstream use at the moment, but I think you should really sort of historically backdate it to all missions using Maelstrom rules, and that is the refined strategy rule from chapter approved 2018. Yeah. So this is just the one where whenever you play a Maelstrom game, you can remove up to six of the cards from your tactical objective deck in order to refine your strategy. And it's proved incredibly helpful and improves the quality of life of gameplay and Maelstrom missions in all six of those latest Maelstrom missions. But I think it should be applied to all Maelstrom missions or any mission that uses the tactic, uh, the tactical objectives cards pretty much for any reason or method. Yeah, because the, the missions don't actually... There's nothing specific about the missions that makes you makes that rule any more important than any other mission it just yeah it just seems there's, like it there's yeah. only one in the past where it kind of has a edge case influence but that's the next point that i'll talk about after this so oh, okay in a just in a vacuum it doesn't have any real negative it, it just helps you sort things out. i mean i do think it's a little odd how for some armies there's stuff that seems like an auto removal which kind of is then reducing how much you get to choose to influence your deck. For example, Tau, any Tau player would always remove the universal tactical objective of manifest a psychic power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you could argue that that means actually they're only going to pick five cards to remove from their strategy deck to try and refine their strategy because one of them isn't actually refining what they're trying to do with their army. That's just going, well, this was impossible, so I guess that's yeah. fine now. I, I always I I always remove um the is it priority orders that's like a Yes, either the one that can only be achieved by the warlord, I always remove that one. Yeah, because as a you know, my warlord's always a guard, like a com- company commander. He does he's not gonna do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always get rid of that one. It's when it's things like destroy something with the fly keyword, and it's like, right, well, I have a war boss. The main thing he kills things with is power claw. And yeah. Like, and when my opponent knows I've got this tactical card as well, they're just going to fly anything that's like jump infantry away from him, and he's never going to catch that aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> he's physically not allowed to assault it, so he's not going to shoot it down with his custom shooter. Nope. Yeah, I get when you when you brought this up before we started recording. Have we got any house rules that we follow? I, I'm not really registered it as a house rule, but I guess you're absolutely right. It, we've done it last edition. We do it this edition when we when we're playing at the club with tactical objectives or playing against anybody with tactical objectives. If you draw a card that's basically impossible, kill a psycho, and you've not got psycho, yeah. So you know, bring down a flyer, discard it immediately, pull another one. That was um, a little bit, a caveat that I put in here that I wanted to mention was I know how my player groups have played it in the past is that you basically get like one mul- like one mulligan like per turn because say you draw three tactics cards in a turn, 
it seems weird to say, right, well, all three of these are unachievable. I'll just redraw three of them. You'd be like, right, well, all three of them are unachievable, so I'm going to discard one of them and get one free draw to replace that. But the other sort of side of it that we always played it as was we question, was it achievable at the start of the game? Ah. Uh. So, for example, if, it, if you drew a card that said, kill a psyker, and the enemy did have a psyker, like they had one at the start of the game and you have previously killed it in the game, we'd say you have to stick with that because that was achievable at some point. It's just unfortunate that you've drawn it later on when it is no longer achievable because it's turned four or five and you've killed the enemy psychers. No, we we tend to discard if if you know the psychers if there's no psychers on the table right now and they're not going to be until the end of the battle, uh, you can discard. The other place it's come up for me was uh, we were playing a game with tactical objectives and creeping lava. You remember the battle zone about creeping lava from one of the Vigilus books, um, and we somebody drew a take uh, objective four, and objective four had been destroyed by the lava already. So we said, well, that's not possible, draw. Yeah, like I think that's a kind of caveat that you need to sort of decide in your own playgroup. Um, I know, for example, in my playgroup, that would have been a perfect thing where we would have gone, well, Objective 4 was around, that was achievable at some point in the game previously, so that tough, you know, yeah. Because, I mean, in a way, that still provides purpose to having the you discard one at the end of every turn, the 2CP stratagem to replace and redraw one of the ones that you've drawn it still has that like tactical flexible flexibility to it. it adds it presents a new tactical challenge whereas if it was just big game hunter kill something with 10 or more wounds and ironically the opponent's army list never had anything that had 10 or more wounds in it you're like oh well that was never physically achievable yeah so it's, it's a weird draw because you know, you know, if you killed, if you killed the one thing that had ten wounds, and then you draw the card, and you, and then you're saying you can't have the points. Um, it's a weird. It's kind of. I don't know. It's an odd situation because I've had it before. I've always played it that you can get rid of stuff that you that is impossible. Um, and you then see... I played someone that then said, "No, that's that's not a rule." And I was like, yeah, but it's just how I play it. And they were like, no, it's not a rule. You have to pay two two command points to do that. Exactly. Which is, it's, which is why it's um, an odd thing where it should it be a rule, but then if it is a rule, how do you define what's considered impossible? You know, yeah. Like you say, there and then in the moment, impossible to kill a psyker. There are no psychers left. But previously in the game, you've already killed three of them. The opponent yeah. had three psychers. So if you were to look at your deck as a strategic thing at the start of the game, it you would be possible for you to kill psychers. It's just that yeah. the turn that you drew it, it was no longer possible. But if you if if you if you're forcing people to pay the CP cost to, you know, if that if if that's the rule, then all you're doing is just penalising somebody for drawing an incorrect card, which doesn't really seem, it doesn't seem fun. You but know, then, if you want to play that, the reverse play. of that is if. It get if units if discarding and redrawing new cards is based on purely what's left alive and available on the board, then you're actually funneling down the deck even more and more and more by turn by turn to what is actually achievable and you're effectively 
you're almost invalidating the randomness of the deck then because you're just going, right, well, we'll just keep discarding these impossible objectives until we draw one that is achievable. And this is There's why an I don't like... For... Yeah, this is why I don't like oh, tactical God. objectives. <laughs> yeah. Because you... But this is why things like the refined strategy kind of helps at least, you know, yeah. limit that. Because there's a, a good point for, say, you drew control objective six in turn five of the game, and objective six is in the far opposite corner, not held by anyone, but you physically don't have any units of enough movement to reach objective six. Is that considered an impossible objective, and therefore you discard it? Or is it a, uh, well, yeah. you just weren't, you hadn't positioned your army to potential uh, to go get it in case it came up? Yeah, yeah and no, that your... I wouldn't consider that one impossible because it's on the board and you can do it. Whereas, you know, if your opponent's got no psychic. But, but you physically nice. can't do it because in that situation you haven't got the movement to get to it. You physically can't do it. It's yeah. technically as impossible. But I agree, it doesn't feel no. as impossible. No, I wouldn't. I would say you stuck with that. Yeah. Which is why it's kind of awkward to set some hard and fast rules for what is and isn't impossible and therefore worth being a free mulligan or redraw. Yeah. Mm. Which is why removing six cards pre-game helps at least mitigate that coming up because you are going to be able to objectively think about your deck. Oh, I'm playing Tau. I can't cast powers. Right, let's move that out. Yeah. You know, I'm playing Orcs. Chances of me wanting to... Um, hold my hold three units in my deployment zone is probably slim. You know, some army builds maybe that's doable, but others probably not. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm playing as guard. The chances of me wanting to advance every unit in my army out of my deployment zone is very slim. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things here is clearly we've got three slightly different ways of playing just in this discussion. So I think uh, if anybody's uh, got different ways of playing, oh yeah, or how some of the way they use tactical people objectives, and that. yeah, I'd definitely love to hear what people consider being worth like redrawing on objectives for. You know, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, but then the next point is the tactical priority rule. So this is if you want to take deck building one step further. So if you really enjoy the refined strategy rule, maybe your playgroup even plays around with adjusting how many cards that you remove from your deck in advance. You know, does it have to be six? It could be more, it could be less. The reason why it's six is because it's six out of 36 potential card options. So it's like a, a solid one six of the deck. Um, so if you take out more than six cards, then that's changing the odds quite a bit. But what you can do is you can use the tactical priority rule from the tactical escalation Maelstrom mission, which is in the core rulebook. And this one, I don't even know if you're aware, but do you know that each of the sets of six tactical objectives have their own subcategory? Uh, yes, like season hold and taken, or yes, and annihilate and stuff and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So, as far as I'm aware, the ta tactical escalation mission is the only thing that's directly referenced these. But essentially, yeah, they've got all the um, six sets of six have their own subtype, and this is even if you didn't use racial tactical cards to replace. Number uh, results 11 through 16 
they're they're considered like hold and secure one and then sets twenty one through twenty six are like hold and secure two. Yeah. For example. But basically, yeah, I think um I think it roughly pans out as results one to sixteen are your racial ones, so the ones out of your codex. Eleven uh, twenty one through twenty six is go hold that objective at the end of your turn. Take and hold. 31 through 36 is defend, so you have to have that objective number for two player turns. Four through uh, 41 through 46 is the basically do unusual things, so stuff like manifest powers, um, uh, deny powers, uh, move everything out of your deployment zone, um, have so many units in your deployment zone, stuff like that. A uh, fifty-one through fifty-six is kill things in various shapes or forms. So kill a unit in combat, kill a unit with shooting, kill something with ten or more wounds, kill something with fly. And then sixty-one through sixty-six, I think, is things like um, assassinate. So like kill characters, uh, make someone feel morale checks, um, priority orders received, stuff like that. Things I think are like uh, messing with command structure, kind of things. Yeah. So, the tactical priority rule, when you're scoring your victory points for completing your tactical objectives, if you're using this rule, then at the start of the game, you've both nominated one of these six categories of tactics card to be your tactical priority. So you might say, I'm going to prioritise the Annihilation ones. So results 51 through 56, the destroy units. Or you might say, I'm going to prioritize my racial ones. So 11, uh, yeah, 11 through 16, everything to do with my orc of tactical objectives. Yeah. Whichever one that you've picked, whenever you score a tactical objective from that subcategory, you score an additional victory point. Because that's the one that you're focusing towards trying to achieve. But equally, if ever you discard one of your tactical uh, tactical priority cards, you lose a victory point. So uh, you're kind of you're committing to a certain course of action. Yeah. You'll get more for achieving them, and you'll actually lose some victory points to abandon them. So in missions where like you've got tactical gamble, where you could discard two tactical two objectives in order to generate one new one, but that new one is worth double if you completed that turn, there's an extra incentive to avoid discarding one of the ones that might be bad for you there and then. So you might have um, you might have chosen your Annihilation as your priority one, and one of the ones that you've got for that turn is destroy a unit in combat. But that's just not going to happen. You're not going to be killing a unit in combat that turn. So you're looking at that one, and another one that you might discard to draw a gamble card that'd be worth double points. Yeah. But you have to sacrifice one victory point to do that because you're discarding the kill things in combat and you've already said that you're prioritizing the killing things objectives. Yeah. But then, say the one you draw is kill things with shooting. Cool. Normally that's going to be worth two victory points. But because it's a gamble one for that mission, you would actually earn four and... Because it was a tactical priority one, you'd get an extra one. Nice. I, I like I like this, and I like 
the throwing away six cards because you know when Games Workshop first peddled stratagems, it was like refining the way that you want to play. You know, like if you if you're gonna go down this route and try and use these stratagems, and that's like the way you're gonna play. And this feels the same. You know, you're mm. you you you're not necessarily playing um to all of your army's strengths. You're sort of picking you know one particular thing, which is which is which is good. Yeah, it makes it more interesting because you're not just playing a generic, um, the same game that everyone else and is, so to speak. It can also help you really build into your amulet's considerations. So, for example, if you've opted to remove six things across um, five of the subtypes, that you know, in order to remove things that you are not favorably going to be achieving with your army, fine. But in addition to that, you could say. I'm prioritizing defend objectives where you have to hold something for two player turns. Yeah. So you're not going to remove any of those six from your deck. You're going to keep all six of those. Yeah. And you might deliberately include some um, extra deep striking units, things like um, Skions and your cards and stuff. And their entire role in the game is to wait for a defend objective to pop up on a currently unoccupied objective marker. And then they drop in and go, right, bam, where we've appeared on this, um, it's our tactical priority, and because we weren't weren't expected to be here, there aren't any enemy resources put over to trying to shift us off it. And now we're going to score, is it, I forget how many is, is it three victory points or two victory points for holding a defend? Two. Two. So you get so you get the two for holding a defend, but you're also getting an extra one because it was your tactical priority. And you've considered putting in elitist deep striking units in your army build because you know that you're going to be prioritizing defend objectives. Yeah. And it lets you take that aspect of deck building one step further. With, with, with these, would you would you discuss it first? Because I often go to a game and don't don't know the mission until we get there. Like we might say, you know, we'll play chapter approved. We get there and go, should we do cards? Well, yeah, but you know, so, with this it feels like you need to maybe decide all this first and then build. Then you can both build like quite a tailored list around your, you know, your chosen path. I mean, the, yeah, there's two ways of doing it. You could either both agree that you knew you were going to play a certain Maelstrom mission and you knew the nature of how you are going to draw tactics cards in that game, and then you can plan accordingly the removal of your refined strategy cards and the pick of your tactical priority. Technically, as written in the missions, that's how it happens. Like It's, at the, it's like pre-deployment. It's during that step of the game that you would remove the cards. But what's nice about this is you can kind of create a universal... 30 card deck because you know that pretty much regardless of exactly which maelstrom mission you're playing so long as you're playing a maelstrom mission you know that you don't want these six cards and uh, chances are you're gonna pick the same tactical priority based on your army build yes but not necessarily like you might pick it based on what you're playing against like Oh, I'm playing against Raven Wing today. They're really fast moving. I'm gonna really struggle to achieve any defend objectives because whichever one comes up, they're gonna be able to get to it. They're going yeah. to be able to threaten to take me off it. 
conversely, you might be like, oh, I'm playing against um, guard today. They're probably going to be standing still and shooting me a lot. So I'm actually going to take secure objectives as my tactical priority because I don't think they're going to be able to outmaneuver me. Yeah. So I think that, again, is one to sort of decide in your local player group. But I think it's certainly... What's nice about it is that you can just propose it at the start of the game if it's someone who you're just having a pickup game with. You'd be like, oh, do we both want to just pick one of the six types? If we achieve it, we score an extra one. If we discard it, we lose one. Yeah. Yeah, I might give this a go, actually, next time tacticals come up. Good. I've inspired you. That's the important thing. I just have to to remember. I don't think it's the kind of thing that I really find that exciting about my games. That that kind of, I can see how you can use it to add flavour to your, your army list and use it. But if if I want that kind of level of deck building in my game, before you care, there are people out there that enjoy deck building aspects to things like that. I know the people that really enjoy Shades Spire because of it. So for those people that want to try it in their games of 40k and Milstrom, I'm sure there is a Venn diagram of people who enjoy Shades Spire and enjoy Milstrom missions in 40k. <laughs> Well, for those people, there is a second level of deck building to Maelstrom that you can do if you want. Yeah, but if you really love this stuff, I mean, you can still get copies of Warhammer 40,000 Conquest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's kind of it for publicised rules that exist somewhere. Because like I say, even the tactical priorities thing does exist in a particular Maelstrom mission. I'm just suggesting you apply it as a blanket rule to all Maelstrom missions. But the last two points we have, these are house rules which I propose are definitely worth giving a try if you enjoy casual and narrative gameplay. And if you've made it, you know, two hours plus into a narrative podcast, I assume you do. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope you, you might want to give these a go. And I reckon I'm probably going to get some uh, some controversial answers from the pair of you. But here we go. First one. I propose no more command rerolls. Done with it. Don't need them. Get that stratagem and throw it out. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I am. I am kind of. A, I think I said it earlier when I was talking about how another competitive game. I'm a bit of a reroll guy. I tend to use most of my campaign points in rerolls. But it's interesting playing against people who use stratagems to see how they use them and to use them differently. And I. I was quite taken by the grenades uh, stratagem that I'd not really come across in any period ago before. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of mileage in this one. Yeah, I, 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 I like it as well because I think because you know over the course of a five-turn game, if you've got, you know, I think on average you probably end up with eight command points after I've you know got five, got three, and then got some extra, and then spent a couple on relics or whatever, and you know you probably end up spending three or four of them probably on a re-roll you know for like damage from a las cannon or or something so to not do that and try and think about using them more effectively elsewhere would be it would be interesting i don't know if it, i don't think it'd be interesting it would it make you play better would it make you not rely not you know yeah it's interesting i might try that as well I'm not sure any house spell variant can make me play better, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, I didn't. Uh... Mine, like my number one point with it is that is exactly that. I think having the existence of the command reroll stratagem actually just means that you see other stratagems used far less. 
Like yeah. you, people are spending less command points on the cool and interesting and thematic stuff that their units are capable of doing. We have all these really cool stratagems that exist because yeah. statistically, it's better just to re-roll that damage roll on that las cannon. Yeah, than w- it is to tell all your guardsmen to throw grenades. Yeah, I wonder if uh, t- two things that bring come to mind. I remember when they changed the, you know, how you could regen command points. I remember when they. I'm going to change that to like one a turn. I stopped taking Kurov's Aquila, which is the guard thing that lets you get them back. And also, I start I stopped taking um, Grand Strategist, which is the Warlord trait that lets you get them back. So yeah, doing yeah doing that changed the way you know I started taking other other Warlord traits like old grudges and other relics. Um, I still take Grand Strategist or Kurov's Aquila to get that one back per turn but i wouldn't take both to maximize i'd take something else and then the other thing you know this new the sisters thing the miracle dice or whatever it's called is that right yeah what's it called yeah the miracle it's the miracle dice system yeah yeah. so i wonder if that will reduce the amount of command re-rolls as well because you could just you can just basically Mm -hmm. pick up a six from earlier and go i'm going to use that and so i wonder if that'll I wonder if I wonder if sisters sister players won't use command rerolls as much because they can't use well, their their pool of dice. So here's here's the thing, and I can give personal experience in this, and I know this why I can see why this might sound like a biased thing from a point of view of pure competitive stats. But I play Death Skulls. I have a reroll built into every attack I make anyway. I ah, yes. every a hit roll and hit wound and damage roll potentially even any attack made by a unit I have, I get to re-roll one of those. Yes, and I know it well because that was the orcs that beat me that absolutely smashed me yeah. over death scores. Yeah, and then things like salamanders have this too. I think there's a new custom Eldar craft world that can do something very similar. I think. Okay. Um, and so, so these things do exist, but. So the result of that is, is I find that when I play my Death Skulls, I don't use the command re-roll strat. Now, yes, that is because, inherently, I have re-rolls built into my army. So it's not as noticeable to me to just spend one CP re-rolling something when I could probably re-roll that anyway with that unit without having to spend the CP. Yeah. But the thing that I do see from that is that I only spend my CP on the fun strats or the moments that I wouldn't typically otherwise have gone for that stratagem because I probably would have burned through the CP on necessary rerolls. And I would happily play in a world where Death Skulls did not have rerolls as their racial trait and still propose we play without command rerolls. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that it does detract from this really cool new mechanic the Games Workshop introduced of 8th edition and added all these cool stratagems to the game. How often do you ever see someone actually using the orbit, uh, the preliminary bombardment strat for a guard? I used it against the orcs. I use that against the interrains. And it's fun, isn't it? I use it all the time whenever I play with my guard. It's incredibly fun, and in a world where the command reroll doesn't exist, I think it seems like it's actually worth the investment. But it's only because you balance that stratagem off against the idea of, hmm, yeah, but two re-rolls and key moments that it gets outweighed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only reason I used it was because 
all the orc artillery disperses into individual units. So I rolled like, you know, loads of dice to get the mortal wounds. I think I did nine across yeah. the whole army. But you, that's the first time I've used it for and it's fun months. It's yeah. good and it's really thematic for the army. But in most cases, is it better than two command rerolls? Probably not. No, it's so much more fun and so much more diverse and. Can you imagine if that was a thing that became a consideration for other players? You're like, oh, I'm playing guard. I'm probably going to have to consider being bombarded because they're going to bring the artillery, as it were. Yeah, that's a thing that becomes unique to guardsmen, you know. Um, but then every army in every race would have its selection of stratagems that suddenly would become more associated with that army because you'd actually see use space marines. Oh, I'm going to have to watch out for all spec scans or transhuman physiology. That stratagem has had so much hype about it, but actually I've seen it used very little because people just prioritise using their commander rerolls. Yeah. And yeah. then the second side of all this is that I think commander rerolls introduce too much consistency to the game. Too much of it. I think that when that moment that that last cannon rolls a 1 or that to wound roll of a 2 plus doesn't come off, those are the moments that provide both players with opportunities to swing the game in their favours. When you can just mathematically more or less guarantee that if I target X thing with Y thing, it's going to die. It, do, it yeah. leads the game to be more of a game of spreadsheets. Whereas if you can't statistically guarantee that X is going to kill Y every time, it's just likely to do it. But then that one turn and it doesn't, suddenly that gives Y the opportunity to do something to turn it around and actually gives the game more momentum to swing towards back towards um, who's winning and who's losing than just reinforcing it with mathematics. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I might, I might suggest this maybe for my game on Monday. Good. You're going to be rolling up with an entire podcast of suggestions. We're doing yeah. this, and this, and this, and this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not all at once, but no, no, the next no. eight games, you're going to have eight different things to try out. Yeah. Well, it'll be um, it'll be a vigilous, defiant mission. So we won't be using cards or anything. But you know, this this could work. This could be interesting. Uh, yeah. The maelstrom thing. The the psychic maelstrom might be too much. Uh, <laughs> for this game, but, but yeah, to consider, yeah. And if yeah. the opponent brings flyers, they can definitely leave the board. Yeah, yeah. he does have flyers. I know he has flyers. I don't know how many they. Hmm. No, yeah. So the last point that I would suggest people try, like the last house rule that I think would really change up and improve the quality of your casual and narrative games. Make every stratagem one use only. Uh, Actually, command reroll is a stratagem, right? Yes. So, again, you don't necessarily have to do both. You could allow command reroll, but you literally get one per game. Yeah. I don't. Um, now, I, think I understand about it. I don't... there'd be a couple of edge cases where you might have to say some things will be allowed multiple uses and primarily things that are like pre-game stratagems things like um 
and buying relics and so on. Um, oh yeah, stuff like that. You know, there are a few things that yes, you would apply logic to and say that you can do this and that. But as a generalist rule, you would you could probably implement this idea that you make all stratagems one use per game. Thinking about it, I don't know how many times I, you know, use multiple stratagems because some of them, like, you know, I always think of like overlapping fields of fire, which is the Cadian one that let that gives you plus one ballistic skill against one target once you've wounded it. That's two CP. And, you know, if you use that against something big to get rid of it, it means you don't need to use it again because you've got rid of the big thing, you know, probably. Um, and so... There'll just be another big thing and then you rinse and repeat the same technique, a tactic. Well, how about you have yeah. to find a new way to deal with the second big thing? Throw lots of grenades at it <laughs> instead. Yeah. Orbital bomb bomb. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. if you did this, I feel it would add, one, diversity to gameplay... You wouldn't just end up with chaos players every single turn. Veterans of the long war, veterans of the long war, command reroll, command reroll. Like so, you actually, you're not going to use any of the cool or interesting stuff. You're just going to use veterans and command reroll. Eldar players, it's just going to be lightning reflexes, lightning reflexes, lightning reflexes. You can just even knights rotate iron shields, rotate iron shields. Yeah, you can guarantee most armies have something that you can guarantee you're going to do every turn. Because the rules allow you to do it every turn. So suddenly you would end up with, like I say, some of the more unusual and interesting um, stratagems being employed. It would affect list building because you wouldn't get people that build lists that are intended to do that one trick over and over and over and over again um, yeah. on the same unit in the same way. Instead, you might take an army list that included two to three units that have a trick that they do once per game. So in that one turn, this unit is going to be um, covered by the cloud of flies. So they're not uh, going to be targetable for this turn. Next turn, this unit are going to use veterans of the long war. So they're going to get the plus one to wound something. Turn after uh, another turn, this unit is going to use endless cacophony to fire twice. Yeah. But if you could use the same strat multiple times as you currently can do, you're probably not going to have those three different things. You're just going to have the one unit which every turn is going to concophony and fire twice every turn. Or the one unit that's forever going to be covered by the cloud of flies. Yeah. Mm. And it also adds tactical decision making because you actually have to play a little bit of a bluff game with the opponents. If Eldar players only get to use lightning reflexes once per game their opponent doesn't necessarily know whether or not they're going to warrant using lightning reflexes in turn one. Is it going to be important enough in turn one to use your lightning reflexes and force that additional minus one to hit? Or is it going to be more important to do it on a unit that's trying to survive to get a key charge in next turn or a unit that's trying to survive to not be blown off an objective? Yeah. Yeah, and in- interestingly, the answer to that is sometimes yes, it is worth it, even in turn one. I mean, my in my competitive game that I played, Paul used almost all his command points in turn one, either protected himself or boosting his targets from my first bane blade, and, and had almost no um, command points left for the rest of the game. But it won him the game, so it, it is really can make really interesting uh, combinations. Yeah, one one thing that I've noticed from you know, because I'm doing this ICT thing, um, and 
sort of been reading up on you know that which you you know one has to do um if you're doing that is that some armies are literally geared around okay i've got i've got six cp that's how many i need and i've never thought of it like that before and some and it sounds like you're uh, that paul you know on the first turn they only need two for this two for this two for this and two for this and that's and even though they're not using things multiple times but it's it's interesting that i mean i i just i, I have the cp and i use them and that's it that's my thought process i never go well if I'm, you know, I'm going to use this twice, so I need four, and I'm going to use this once, so I need, uh, you know, five. It's you couldn't, you could play like that actually with this ruling. It would just, yeah, it would really divert. You'd really diversify what you're doing. I like it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm, I'm quite a lot like you. I, I just use them where I've got them, and um, but no, yeah, a properly competitive list. Uh, it's still workable I mean, even even with this yeah, suggestion because even from like yeah the competitive standpoint with it if you want to do that I want to try in competitive games imagine you're playing with against um, Dark Eldar and you know they've got um, the ability to agents affect something so at some point in the game they can just veto one of your stratagems now but you know that they only get to do that once per game but equally whatever stratagem you're trying to do you only get to do once per game now in this case i would say that if they successfully vectored what you were trying to do you would still be allowed to attempt to do it again in the following turn but you can't guarantee that they're going to choose to vector that thing at that time because there might be something else equally important in the game that they also need to consider whether or not you're going to do that at some point and want to vector that Whereas yeah. if they just know they can do a Vect every turn, they'll just Vect you every turn in some way. And it introduces like double bluffs, triple bluffs, all sorts of things. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to, maybe not for Monday, but um, might, um, might approach that in the future. Might come back to that in the future. Yeah. Remind me. Right. <laughs> Just, just listen back to the show. Yeah, it only takes two, you know, two hours to get. <laughs> oh, no, li- listen. I can't think I listen to my own voice for two hours. <laughs> but yeah, like I honestly, uh, I'd be interested to know if people out there would try and if they enjoy any of these rules that we've suggested. Like I think that they're all little things that could just really improve. The quality of life of your games, especially if you you mostly enjoy playing casual or narrative games, like you can still play with match play rules. You can still play ITC format, or whatever. But if you just wanted to play to have fun with a friend, yeah, maybe just sprinkle in these extra things, and you might find that actually they just really improve the quality of those pickup games. Yeah, and I would love. More so than any other episode we've ever done so far, I would love to hear people's feedback on this. Yeah, absolutely. Although I would recommend a purely narrative game from a personal perspective, but maybe that's me. <laughs> but each to their own. That's the point. You definitely don't have to use all of these. You can use some of them in some missions and not in others, whatever format you take. But like, I just think, try them out. I know that I like using all of these various rules in different degrees in different missions, but 
I think all of them have some validity yeah. in so, some situations. Um, and then I think, given that we're now at the two and a half hours already and it is getting very late, I think we're probably just going to move on very quickly to our personal community spotlights and then I think we'll head out the door there because there's already plenty of content there for people to go on and I'm sure we can catch up on other stuff in another episode. So while I've got you both here, shall we just jump very quickly into our spotlights? What have you got for me today, guys? Uh, so I, I've just got one, really. Uh, it's not really an, an, an online thing or anything like that. I... Um... I had to travel to Orlando in Florida for work and I had the Sunday free to myself as I'd flown on the Saturday and I went to Warhammer Winter Park in uh, the store in, in Orlando and um, the the people in there were, were friendly and welcoming. I had some good chats. Uh, the, the lady who ran the store was, was very helpful in helping me uh, pick up a couple of bits that I could build in my evenings while I was out there. So, um, and uh, it was a, it was a nice Warhammer store to go into when I was in a strange place. So, uh, you know, shout out to Warhammer Winter Park store in, in Orlando, Florida. Nice. So there's a chance we might possibly have some listeners over there or some listeners who will one day find themselves over there. So yeah, it sounds like it's maybe more likely that we got listeners that are going to be um, visiting uh, Orlando. Um, so Good. And uh, Jake, have you got anything recently that's come up in the community um, that you've been particularly enjoying recently? No, I haven't really. I haven't been consuming um, a lot of stuff. I've been doing. Been too, been too busy making excellent stuff. For I've been. Else. I've been doing. Um, <laughs> I don't have. I don't. Sorry. No. I don't. I don't have anything. Um, <laughs> no problem. Um, I mean, for me, I, I just want to shout out the uh, Lawhammer podcast, uh, which is one that I've been enjoying recently, and I've just started working my way through their back catalogue of stuff. Um, they're literally, they're a podcast about 40k law, and that is all they talk about, and it's brilliant. So it's it's not anything to do with you know like gameplay or tabletop stuff or even like game mechanics like i know we're a narrative podcast but we're a narrative from the point of view of gameplay you know from playing the game um whereas they talk about so much in-depth stuff about the like the 20 30 plus years of law that exists in 40k and they take real deep dives and all sorts like they they've had the whole episodes that were to do with just like um the path of the warrior for like eldar aspect warriors um they did an entire episode on um subcults in the mechanicum um they do large scale stuff as well like episodes about the wars in heaven like both of them the ones between the necrons and the old ones and the mythological war in heaven for the eldar gods and so on like there's is this it's a, really cool is this a podcast or a YouTube, did you say? It is. It's a podcast. All right. It's okay, just cool. the Lawhammer podcast. Lawhammer, all one word. Okay, cool. I, I've listened to a YouTube um, channel, a guy that does... Um, is stuff. that, by any chance, going to be 40k theories? Or Warhammer Arch? No, it's Luton. There's a few. Well, Although Luton... Well, there you go. They've all just got a shout-out. Yeah, Luton, <laughs> yeah. Luton oddly... Um, I think used to play like Battlefield 2 
uh, his YouTube channel was all like gaming. And then either a few months ago, rediscovered and was like, oh, he's turned his hand to like transitioned loads of Warhammer theory and lore and stuff. So, um, yeah, there's a few out there, but yeah, I'll check out the podcast. Yeah. It's good to listen. You know, I was, I was asking, is it podcast or is it YouTube? Because it's nice to listen to stuff and not have to always watch it. So if it, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really good for just painting along too. So yeah, that's the, that's the Lawhammer podcast, guys. You should definitely go check them out. And they say they do all sorts of deep dives. And what's nice about their stuff is that it's not topical. So it doesn't matter what they're talking about or when you listen to it. Like their show has been running, I think, for what, two, three years now, something like that. But other than your small difference in what is clearly production and experience quality, the actual content is just as good because it's like, right, well, two years ago they talked about, say, the wars in heaven. Last week they talked about the Sisters of Silence. Well, the law about the Sisters of Silence hasn't drastically changed in two years. Oh. You know, the, the law about the war in heaven hasn't updated in the last two years. So they go into all the stuff about all aspects of 40k law, and you can just cherry pick whichever episodes you fancy listening to if there's the one that they particularly do that sounds interesting to you. Or like me, I I listen to their latest stuff when it comes out, and if they haven't got a latest episode out and I'm looking for something to listen to, I go back to where I am currently in their backlog and just keep working through. Nice. Yeah, I'll so check it's, them a, out. it's a very nice sort of like timeless podcast. You can yeah. you can listen to any episode in any order, any time, no matter how old it is, and it's all excellent. Good. I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up now. <laughs> Perfect. I'm 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 glad that you seem to be enjoying the show and everything we have to talk about just as much as you are being on it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So I hope there are listeners out there that are getting the same experience. Um, So I think that is everything from us today, guys. So if you do want to reach out at all or let us know how any of these, you know, new house rules or new 40k rules have played for you, um, then I want to hear from you. And you can reach me, as I say, on Twitter, on Instagram, you can send me an email, all sorts. Uh, All the information descriptions are in the links below. Um, and unless there's anything else from you guys, I think that's that's everything for today. Yeah. No, thanks for a great chat tonight, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Great. Well, it's been great to be back. It's been too long since we got this one done, but I'm glad I actually got both of you on at once tonight. So thanks for being here, guys. And um, until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k.